going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 317, and I spoke with Rachel Redman. She and I met because she's a Pilates instructor, an excellent one at that, and I started doing Pilates to feel good about myself and feel healthier and get stretchy and all that good stuff. She and I uh, immediately had a connection. She's a really fascinating woman, full of light, very uh, bright and articulate and funny. And I thought, wow, this person is a person I'd like to know. And so we started chatting and I, and I started hearing more of her story. And I said, you absolutely need to be on Hey Human. And she agreed. And thus we have this episode. Uh, Rachel's story is is a twist and turn like I mean like so many people I guess in life hers is is definitely a roller coaster ride between being a young child of divorced parents and the trauma that that brought on to being sent in my opinion basically kidnapped and sent off to a therapeutic quote unquote boarding school and wilderness camp as a teen and then dealing with just coping mechanisms. I don't want to give too much away for this show, but uh, going through different coping mechanisms and and her story all the way up until uh, now. You know, she's a holistic practitioner. She's a, she's a master hypnotherapist. She is a master Pilates instructor. She's on this fantastic journey and has learned a great deal, and I think this episode will be super inspiring for people. We had so much to talk about that I think we are going to have to do it again because we only got up to uh, right when she moved to Los Angeles and the adventures beforehand and her upbringing and childhood and teenage years and college years up till just a handful of years ago and when she started doing the holistic practice stuff. So I definitely want to have her back on as a part two of her former life and her current life. Uh, Definitely keep an ear out for that. This is a a longer episode, but like I said, twists and turns like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) So it's certainly worth worth the ride. Okay, usual stuff. A reminder that I have a new show called Are We There Yet? And it's on YouTube. And it will soon be a podcast when the website's built. But for now, uh, it's a video cast. And the easy way to find it is to go to Instagram.com slash IG, And there's a link in the bio to find the, all the episodes. Once we have 100 subscribers, we get to rename the YouTube channel. Or not the channel, but the link and make it much easier to find. But for now, that's a good way to do it. So go there, go to YouTube, watch the show and subscribe and let us know what you think. It's a show about relationships and sex and the journey we're all on. And I'm doing it with my dear friend Mara. It's a lot of fun. It's very vulnerable and I hope you like it. It's fun to, to go on these new adventures. Social media, Hey Human Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook. My personal social media, Susan Ruthism, is Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So many. Uh, you can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. 
check out on that heyhumanpodcast.com the links page. Every episode and every guest gets a pile of links that I put together to make your life easier if you want to know more about them. So just go there and click away. There's also a store. I partnered with Art of Wear, really cool merch, bags, hats, t-shirts, all the stuffs. Go check that out. It's a great way to support Hey Human and I uh, designed everything myself, so I have the stamp of approval <laughs> on everything. And Art of Wear is a really good company. Uh, their products are, are high-end and lovely, and I think you will be pleased. And if not, they have money-back guarantee, so as do I. If you want to check out old episodes of Hey Human, you can find them on the website as well. Uh, iTunes only holds 300 at a time. I'm not exactly sure how you get to the newer or the older ones on iTunes if they're only showing 300 at a time. There must be a way. I have not taken the time to discover that. I need them. It's on my to-do list. But have no fear. Just go to heyhumanpodcast.com and you can check out all the, the prior episodes that are, you know, episode one through, I guess it would be 17 if they're only showing 300 at a time on iTunes. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Super duper helps, gets the word out, pushes up the algorithm. You know the drill. Please do that. Speaking of things to subscribe to, as if there wasn't enough, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's youtube.com slash official Susan Ruth. And you can go there and find all sorts of fun things. Uh, I'm going to be uploading this week the interview I did with puppets. Oh, I'm sorry. They don't like to be called puppets. They like to be called felt people. Uh, it was a kick in the pants. I really had a blast. And I did it a little while ago, but they're sending me the video so that I can upload it. So keep an eye out for that. Subscribe there as well. That way you know every time I put something new into the machine. Uh, SusanRuth.com. That's where you can go to get more information about me, see my artwork, and know more about my music and anything else that I might be doing. And you can also get on the mailing list. And I promise I have so much going on that I will not send out very many emails. So you might get one or two a year if, you know, if I'm lucky, because <laughs> it means I've sat down for five minutes and made one. I'm not great at it, but you know, join the mailing list, see what happens. Uh, what else? Oh, music. Yes. Speaking of music, my last record, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything, is on iTunes and truly anywhere you can find music these days, Spotify and all the places. Go check it out under Susan Ruth. Take a listen. And I appreciate that. And uh, if you want to contribute, please hit that contribute button on heyhumanpodcast.com. It helps support the show and keep it ad-free and keep it going. And thank you very much. All right. I think that's about that for all of the good news. Oh, I did finally watch all of WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. So good. Wow. It was really something. I highly recommend that. Don't get paid to say so. Just telling you what I think. Uh, all right. Stay safe. Be well. Be kind. Take care of each other. And be the love. We need it. Here we go. Rachel Redman, welcome to Hey Human. 
Thank you. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. I'm really excited. You are a new friend, and I'm really happy about it. We met because you're a Pilates instructor. Yes. And I just started doing Pilates. Yes. Highly love. So happy to hear it. So good. And you're great. You're great. You make it You make it easy, as they say. Thank you. Yes. But anyway, I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you. I want to know everything. That's, that's <laughs> super open-ended. I know. Super open-ended. Um, okay. Should I start at the beginning? Let's do it. Should I start at the beginning? I was born in Seattle, Washington. So we're from the same, yeah. we're from the same place. Like right. we are Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. born and bred. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about our love of music. Seattle music scene is still continuing to, to kick ass really. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's all the rain. People just want to stay inside and play guitar. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all the rain and a little a little melancholy, I think, makes music really, really beautiful. Yeah, a lot of so. depression is what you're trying to say. <laughs> what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that people are depressed <laughs> and they make great music make because great of music that when they express the... themselves. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, born in Seattle and I I spent I spent my time between Portland and Seattle. Um, my parents got divorced when I was really young. I think I was, was one when they split up. And so my dad is from Seattle. My mo- well, not originally, actually. That's kind of a story. It's a whole other story. Um, he's not originally from Seattle. He was actually born in Europe. Oh. Um, he was born in a displaced persons camp one year after World War II because all of my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. So that's a whole story. But he came to Seattle when he was three, so he's from Seattle. My mom's from Portland. So I actually really grew up going between the two. So if we're talking about Seattle music, I'm from Seattle. If we're talking about Portlandia, I get to be from Portland. So I get to go between the two and they're also really connected. Also, how accurate is Portlandia, right? Portlandia is so funny. It is so funny. So funny, so accurate. So accurate, (laughs) so accurate. I mean- Show is brilliant, yeah. It's it's very, very clever. And I really enjoy watching it. And it just, it hits that little spot in you that, that says, I love where I'm from and where I'm from is extremely annoying. You know, that, that, just that piece, but, mm. but you have such affinity for it mm-hmm. and such love for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, what is it? Women and Women Now, the bookstore the book store? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. <laughs> Hilarious. Oh. Yeah. I love it. Anyway. Yes. I, really quick though, before we move on with the childhood. Your dad, where is, where was your dad born? Which, which displacement camp? So he was born, he was born in a displaced persons camp in Linz, Austria. Okay. So he was born in Austria. Um, my, my, my heritage is German, Polish, Austrian, maybe a little Ukrainian. It's, it's tough to know because borders changed a lot. And well, I have, certificates got burnt up too. Well, and, yeah, I have no line on the history, mm. which is, I mean, that's a, that's a challenge, you know, when you want to try to learn something about your family and it just, mm-hmm. the buck just stops and there's mm-hmm. just nowhere to go with it. But he was born there and my mom, her brother, who was uh, just one year older than her, was born in Europe, but she was born in the States. So my grandma was pregnant with her as they came from Europe to the United States. Interesting. So this was 19, 1949, 1950. And I ask because I think our parents' stories so greatly shape our own, especially when they come from that kind of trauma. Absolutely. And I will, I will say that in the last few months, I've been really diving into ancestral trauma. And it's funny to admit that I never thought it was a thing. 
because I just, I thought, you know, I've got enough of my own stuff to deal with. I really, I really don't need to think that much about carrying someone else's stuff inside of me. There is such a landscape here for me to work with already. But when it came to my attention that ancestral trauma is very real and I actually just had these representations of it coming at me pretty clearly and pretty strongly um, in in this waking world, I mean, in, in here, in the now, I do also work with plant medicines in my, you know, in my journey, in my life. Mm. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't sitting in an ayahuasca journey. I wasn't sitting with psilocybin. I wasn't, it, it, this was just waking stuff and this stuff comes to you, it just comes. And you're like, oh, okay, I've got another facet of my life to tune into and to pay attention to. And ancestral trauma is extremely real. Yeah, oh, there's, there's a vast amount of things to talk about. So you, you would bounce back between mom and dad? I did, I started flying alone on airplanes when I was four. They called it an unaccompanied minor. Can you imagine that today? No, no, no parent would do I, <laughs> No parent would do that no, today. They would let think. their child walk 10 feet in front of them today and that child is 12. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. Um, it was a, it was a, I hate to overuse the word trauma, but it was a, it was a cool experience, but also looking back, it was a traumatic experience. Well, it forces you to be a little grown up. I was a little grown up, starting when I was one, and mm-hmm. those two and those two parents split. That was just how it worked. Mm-hmm. I got to be a little grown up from the from the beginning, from what I can remember. Do you ever? Do you recall? I mean, one, you have probably not a lot of recollection, but in those early years, do you remember being? getting that message like oh now you should be a grown-up or now it's time to rise to the occasion or do you think it was just a in the air um i i'm a pretty sensitive person and sensitive in a in a my my senses are all very strong like my hearing is very strong i see a deep level of detail I my sense of smell is pretty intense those kinds of I'm, I'm very sensitive to what to what I feel and even what I touch like I can I can touch people and I just get different information you know even from just like a quick hug I just get really different reads um and so yeah from a very very young age I was really clear that there were like adult characteristics and responsibilities that were for me to undertake. And as a child, I'm, I also very much remember that I did not relate to other children very well. So in any given situation, even at school, I would seek out the adults. Socially, I would seek out the adults. And as a child, I was, I do have two quite a bit younger than me sisters, one with the same mom and one with the same dad. But I was the only product of that union, so to speak. So I was something of an only child. So I was taken on a lot of adult adventures and had a lot of adult experiences at a young age too. So I was much more comfortable having conversations with adults in very adult settings Mm. than I was on the playground. I was like, why are those kids playing? Like, what's that about? Why are they having fun? Life's pretty serious. It was very hard to relate to children, period. And also that, that childlike exploration, you know, the exploration and the the exploratory, side of being a child the playfulness yeah i just didn't get it Mm. i just didn't get it i watched it and it was strange yeah shut this window too okay the bus is so much noise
I relate to that so much because I too was a little adult who did not get kids at all. Mm. So I totally know where you're coming from completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a specific kind of childhood to mm-hmm. not connect to being a child. Yeah. Do you think that is what makes you so playful now? Because you seem pretty in your pretty much in your childlike personality. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got your shit together. Don't get me wrong, but you have a playfulness. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. As an adult, in the last few years, especially with the kind of exploration that I've done of my own self, I've almost conscientiously made an effort to let those parts of me begin to surface and I imagine that there's more of that to surface more of that childlike curiosity mm-hmm. I've always been a really curious person and an, and an excited person and a passionate person I certainly spent many years pushing that down because it didn't for whatever reason feel appropriate you know just like little rainbow things I still love little rainbow things and I get excited about food and I get excited about playing and I watch other kids play and I'm like I'm pretty sure I want to be doing that you know like oh you want to have a dance party I want to have a dance party oh you want to color so do I you want to do art projects me too so it's it's definitely it's definitely something that's resurfaced were your parents playful or were they it's because sometimes I think in situations of divorce the parents revert to childlike tendencies and the kids have to become adults I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I would say that my parents were serious about their parental responsibilities. At no point did I feel as if I ever needed to care for them in some way or make sure that they were okay in terms of needs being met or roof over our head or food on the table. They were they were very good providers. So as a child, I was certainly well taken care of, well appointed, well managed in that way. Mm-hmm. The, the way in which I felt that I had to be an adult was very much um, that, that, that ability to manage people's feelings or feel as if I needed to manage people's feelings. And I think it's important to identify that what we end up connecting into or tapping into as a kid, it, it might not be, they, they might not have been sitting there thinking my kid needs to manage my feelings, but I perceived that I needed to be managing everybody's you know feelings to an extent because they were, they had a pretty, I'll say embittered divorce. It wasn't a, it wasn't a happy parting. And so it, it I remember being two and realizing that to make one happy was to inherently make the other unhappy and the reverse. And it was a lot because it was, it was paralyzing is what it was because I couldn't take a step in any direction is how it felt. And I've gone back to, there's a certain moment that I, that I go back to. I've gone back, I can go back to it in, in real life. I've certainly gone back to it in hypnosis. And I'm also a trained hypnotist because hypnosis is fascinating. And Love so it. It's something I really want to learn big about. Big fan. Big, big fan. Yeah. It's, it's really incredible. And mm-hmm. it's really the closest thing to psychedelics that exists without actually taking in some kind of an outside entheogenic substance. Um, and entheogen is just the word to refer to, you know, psychedelics, essentially. Um, but 
it's going to the same place. You're going into the subconscious. So when you do all these, you do all these different things, whether it's mushrooms or ayahuasca or any of that, you're also going into the subconscious. And you're doing that with hypnosis too. It's just a different way in. It's just a different path in. Mm-hmm. So um, hypnosis is fascinating. So there's this place that I go in hypnosis. I go there in the medicine. I can go there in real life and look at it. And it's this very specific moment. And I can visualize it. And I've worked with it. I've done reconciliation with it. Um, but it's this very specific moment at roughly age two, maybe a little bit before, where I felt, yeah, I felt myself pulled apart. Like I felt myself really, truly broken in half because I just, I didn't, I didn't have a way to make anything right anymore. That was a feeling inside of me. And, and it is paralyzing when you realize that any step in any direction is going to not work for one of the primary people that you most love mm-hmm. and that is most connected to you. Mm-hmm. And there was, and it felt like there was no way to win. And what do you do when you're that little and there's no way to win? Whatever that even means, you know? And how did I even know all that when I was two? I guess I just did. You know, we have, I think, really inherent wisdom and knowledge that exists inside of us. Well, and kids are super empathic and mm-hmm. absorb everything around them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So picking up on little details that you don't even realize you're picking up on. And parents putting out emotions and ideas that they're not even aware of that they're putting out. Absolutely. And I mean, my mom was 27 when I was born. My dad was 32. I mean, I think of myself at 27 <laughs> or 29, I guess she was when they split up, or 28. He was, you know, 33, 34. Like, I think of myself then. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine even what they I'm were the, going the through. The same person I was two years ago. Me either. Let alone, yeah. let alone then. Yeah. So I can only imagine. I truly have nothing but love and respect for them doing the best that they could, the best with their skills, the best that they knew how in what was an extremely complicated situation. Have you talked to them at all about it now that you're an adult? a little bit you know it's a fine line to walk in terms of making sure that again here's little the little the little person who always wants to make sure that people feel you know protected or or okay um just making sure that you can talk about it in a way that is going to be productive as opposed to going into the past and ending up in a kind of back in the you know he said she said or why or yeah it's it's very difficult to have conversations with anyone where you're saying I am hurt by this or so I feel about this and not have the other person think you're telling me I did this and they're actually two separate things now granted sometimes they are related sometimes there's no relation yeah absolutely and people are entitled to feel what they feel absolutely I mean even recently um, even recently in a dating situation, I, I really got to look at, I really got to look at abandonment. I got to look at abandonment because if you go back to what I just talked about, I felt in that whole situation, I felt abandoned. Nobody necessarily abandoned me. I just felt total abandonment by the fact that I didn't, I couldn't go in any one direction without, you know, feeling mm-hmm. paralyzed mm-hmm. and I felt lost and it was confusing and I guess when I was with one, I sort of did kind of feel like the other one left, even though nobody ever left me and everybody really loved me. If they didn't really love me, 
this is more of an adult realization, not how I felt as a kid. But if they didn't really love me, they wouldn't have each worked so hard to be in my life and, you know, try to protect me in the way that they knew how. Mm -hmm. So of course they, they loved me more than anything. But it was a really interesting realization to, to feel abandonment come up and say to myself, I simultaneously feel abandoned and this person is not abandoning me. Mm-hmm. And it was just this, it, it sounds sort of simple to say it, but when you're in the midst of the feelings to be able to separate, separate out feeling abandoned and then know that someone also isn't abandoning you, it's actually a lot to do. It's a lot to do with your feelings and to separate those two. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of room in this world to have multiple things existing at the same time. And the idea that when you have those feelings as an adult in a in a relationship, whether it's friend or coworker or you know, lover, whatever it is, that knowing that the the trigger, the thing that's setting you off may in fact have very little, if anything, to do with the moment in time that it's actually the moment 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, one, one good sentence from my mom, and I'm seven again, right? Right. Yeah. Totally. And then anyone that says things that are like mom... Suddenly seven it's, again. you know, seven again, and you're being my mom, and I don't like it, so I'm going to get mad, or I and don't like it. And the other person so. has no idea what they just said. They're just like, what are you, ta- what are you talking about? You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's being able to go into our into our own experience and, and look at that and be able to, because someone might feel abandoned and lash out. And then the other person's like, wait, I, I don't even understand why you're coming at me with all this stuff. Versus being able to say, I feel, I feel abandoned. I know you're not abandoning me. This is me working through my stuff. That's that's a very that's a very honest, real conversation to have with someone. Absolutely. That's allowing someone to know a state that you're going into or a way that you're feeling or something that you're experiencing. And in that situation they can support you. And if they want to. Being vulnerable enough to trust that they'll hold that space Mm -hmm. while you go through it Mm -hmm. and not not use it against you. Exactly. And sometimes you have to go through that to see if that's going to be the case or not. You do, and you have to be willing to, you know, and and you go through that maybe, and and you say, okay, well, I was vulnerable, and that person is not able to hold space for that, and that does not mean that I should continue my life any differently than I am doing it. I can continue with vulnerability. Easy to take that, though. If you've been vulnerable in the past and it has not worked for you, easy to take that and go, Oh, this affirms that I should retreat, retreat. And that's not, at least for me, that's not the answer. It is, how do I build resilience? How do I keep building my own resilience? How do I keep standing in, in what I like to call redwood energy? Lately, mm. I've been, I've been really like the redwood, the energy of the redwood tree has been coming at me. And, and I just keep saying to myself, just, you know, embody the redwood, be the redwood. A redwood is, it's a, such a solid image it's such a vast image it's such a beautiful um grounded image but it also exists in community mm. you know so be be strong in yourself and continue to exist in community don't shun the community don't shun the the connections you know their roots the way that their roots join underground i mean most trees trees are just in i mean i see trees are just people they're just plant people I mean, yeah, I mean, look at we're surrounded by <laughs> we're, plants. We are surrounded by plants. It's beautiful. <laughs> but being able to say to yourself, okay, well, I've, I've 
practiced a new skill or I've practiced the skill of being able to hold myself and hold someone else and it didn't really work out. I didn't get the support that I'd hoped for. In this previous relationship you're talking about. Or, or just in any moment mm-hmm. that, you do, that you choose to trust somebody with mm-hmm. your feelings and you feel like that that's not really, you know, either, not reciprocated, but that's not really supported in the way that you were hoping for um, or supported at all or whatever it may be. And, and that is not a call to change. It's just a, it's a call to keep going and know that there are, of course, going to be people that come along and that really want to support mm. you. One thing about the plant shooting up through the concrete. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's always a way. When did you come into this realization? Was it adulthood or did you start getting glimmers of that thought process when you were young? Oh, no. Definitely adulthood. Mm. I would say that that as a kid, um, my ex- there was so much going on. And, and my parents had a very litigious divorce. So there was a lot of... There were a lot of arbitrators and mediators and lawyers and therapists, and it was oh, a God. very, Jeez. it was a very involved situation. And so, I was usually pretty, um, I was pretty spun up in trying to sort what all that was. And I was going to say trying to sort how I felt, but I didn't really know how I felt. I was just trying to get by. Starting at a pretty young age, I was like, I just gotta like navigate this somehow, and I don't know how. So I just I keep talking to the adults. They seem to they seem to understand what you say. So just keep talking to the adults. Did you? But you were in therapy too. They put you in therapy to. Yeah, I think that. But I don't know if my parents chose to, or if or if when you get to, when you get divorced and your kid is that young, if it becomes even court ordered. Um, I started going to therapy when I was really little, and then I had. A lot of therapy. There were, I mean, there were the therapist and my mom's and the therapist and my dad's and like a family therapist and my mom's and a family therapist and my dad's and there were school therapists and then there were court therapists. There was a lot of different people that were part of the therapy team. Which is also interesting to put a kid through because although I am absolute believer in therapy, I think about all these different kinds of therapy. Every therapist has their own way of doing things. And then here's this kid who, when you're little, you have to be in the clouds a bit, mm. right? But therapy is very grounding, and mm-hmm. it forces you really into your feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that would be really heavy. It it was really heavy, and I think one of the things that it also forces you into is your thoughts. Because, at least for me, too many feelings weren't particularly safe and I recall getting a lot of feedback to the tune of if I was feeling something I should either not be feeling it or feeling something else so trusting my feelings has been very much a more recent part of my journey but as a you know intellectually gifted person I could always use my words and my thoughts and in a way, well, it's it's wonder. Everything, every characteristic we have is going to have its you know kind of pluses and minuses. Shadow and light. Yeah, Absolutely. always the shadow and the light. Sure. So. Did you learn to manipulate early? So you. To an extent. Yeah. But I'm I'm actually. I don't I don't like being manipulative, and as an adult, that is something I have made some really conscious choices against, or to move away from. Hmm. Knowing knowing what I could do. 
and then choosing not to do it. There's been a lot of situations where I've been like, man, what I could get out of this if I wanted to. And then knowing, like, but that doesn't feel right to me. Mm-hmm. Why would I do that? You're using your powers for good and not I'm evil. My powers for good, yes. <laughs> I, made a, I made a decision a long time ago to I use it. my powers for good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so, um, <laughs> so I did. I learned a lot about, about how to think and how to speak. I learned a lot in the, in the realm of, of the mind. And that's been, in some ways, to the detriment of the realm of feeling. Although I can, I can speak very well about feelings, and I can feel much more now. And then taking feelings and actually being able to allow them to go into your body is a whole other, very different level. One that I would say I'm working with much more now. And it is beautiful and petrifying. And it is glorious and very hard. And it is painful and <laughs> excruciating and super, super incredible. You know, that that somatic form of life is uh, it's pretty next level. So my next question would be, just because I recognize this child you're describing, mm-hmm. even though my parents are still married, I still recognize this child. When did you do drugs for the first time? Or alcohol? When did I do drugs? When did you start leaving your body? I mean, I probably first smoked pot when I was maybe 14. Mm -hmm. Sure. I was 14. Um, And and drugs play a big role in my life story. Big role. Um, Which I imagine that we can spend some time on. Let's do it. Um, But I first, yeah, I probably first smoked pot around 14. And... I smoked some pot. I dropped acid a couple times. But that was that was pretty much... I mean, I was really... Again, Seattle, early, mid-90s, we were weed smokers. You know? And... And LSD takers. And apparently... And mushroom pickers. Because mushrooms grew in everybody's yard. Yeah. I didn't I didn't experience psilocybin until, until college. Um, but... That is because when I was 16, I got sent away to a pretty particular kind of boarding school. And I got sent away also on a wilderness program, a very particular kind of wilderness program before I got sent to the very particular kind of boarding school. Um, So I missed some social opportunities that otherwise most definitely would have presented themselves. Usually you got sent to places like that when you've been a bad girl. You've been a bad girl. I, I, I was living with my mom in Portland. And then when I was 13, I moved up to Seattle and lived with my dad. And that, that involved, um, like, a custody trial. So, like, a 10-day custody trial in the Washington State Court that had about eight, hour, eight, eight months or so of preparation ahead of it. Was this brought on by parents or by you? I asked to go live with my dad. I had no idea. I had no idea that that was how that would play out. I mean, I was a kid. Sure. I was 12. Right. So I thought, oh, maybe I could go try living with my dad. It was a pretty simple thought to me. Not getting along with mom at the time? It was yeah. It was it was tough for me. I was I was just having a tough time, and I understand I understand that twelve is a tough age, you yeah. know. And there were mitigate, moms and you know, daughters. Moms and daughters. It's 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 challenging. Moms and daughters are really challenging, and I was having a tough time. And it was um, again. I look back on it and remember it being a little bit 
like I asked to move because I was a little bit alarmed by my feelings to the extent that I I was like am I am I gonna like survive this I I wasn't sure I just suicidal thoughts no because well no because I never ever even in my darkest days along many years of whatever never did I ever want to take my life I just wondered if whatever situation I was in like what just would I be able to make it not necessarily would I actively take measures to stop it but like would I could I survive this because this hurts a lot or something I think that that's much more closer than the thought like of okay I could take a razor blade and I could cut my wrist and then I could bleed I don't think I knew that I had no idea that that was a thing or or whatever whatever form I mean life before life before the internet life when you had you know 12 channels of cable was different so it was more just a feeling I was like gosh I'm 12 and this is tough and I don't know how how you survive this and I'm 12 and that seems a little strange so maybe I should go live with my dad didn't know that it was going to turn into you know what it turned into and then how the relationships played out after that I just didn't know I can't say if I I can't say if I would have done something different I did I did what I knew how to do at the time which was something that felt like some kind of instinct to survive kicked in and was like try something else because I don't know if this is okay um so there was a custody trial and you know, I had to, I had to, I had to testify against my mom in front of her Fuck. for an entire day yeah. at 13 in a courtroom. And I think back to that and that is, that is some, that is a, that is a tough experience. That is a tough experience. I, I would do anything that I could to dissuade anybody from ever I mean, they have to have different ways of doing that now. Like, do it in a closed room. I don't know. I don't know. Do it in a closed room with, like, a judge and the one lawyer from each side. I don't know. I don't know what the better way is. Or just don't go there at all. Something. There's got to be a better way. I, I remember being up there on the stand. I mean, I remember it. It was... It's, it's the kind of trauma that lives in you that comes up and visits you sometimes and... You know that it shaped you, and I know certain ways in which it has taken its its toll. But um, you know, again, people were doing what they knew how to do. Mm-hmm. They were following the path that that they, I guess, knew to follow, or that they felt was the you know the the way to go or the right thing to do. So, did your mother understand at the time the situation that? Or did she? In other words, did she hold it against you? Do you think? That I moved? That you even, the things that you said in trial, that you, in the custody hearing, it's not a trial, she held it against you. I mean, yes. She did not see the insanity of making a child testify. At the time, that was what was done. I don't, I hope they don't do that anymore. They can't do that anymore. They can't do that anymore. You know, the thing is, is my parents... As their child, I have I have deep empathy from where both of them are coming from. And 
again, I have such deep love for, for who they are and how much they've done in their lives and how much they went through, how much, you know, how much they went through to be the parents that, you know, also hurt me. These are the kinds of experiences that when you are in, in psychedelic medicine, I've had these moments where in one second I can see their entire lives. And it, and it creates, again, this deep love and deep compassion because it's like I can see everything that happened in literally one second. I can feel it. I can see it. I can just, I can work with it. And so I think that at the time, you know, my mom felt that she had to go through all of that in order to take on my dad. And my dad felt that he had to go through all of that in order to take on my mom. And I'm sure each one felt that that type of level of intensity and trial and whatever was, was uh, you know, caused by the other and was perpetrated by the other. Drama you know feels what I mean? good. Yeah. It's a dopamine. It, it is. It's a, it's a dopamine hit. And you know what else in, it feels good in a way? Is backing into your corner and digging in and saying, I am right. And under no uncertain terms will I ever be convinced that there is a different way other than my way. <laughs> you know, the, the old my way or the highway. Mm. And I get it. And, and you know, that is also a survival skill. And we can look at we can look at all of the things that have happened to us that have hurt us or who we are and how we've hurt ourselves because ultimately you learn to hurt yourself and you learn to do it really well. Mm-hmm. And especially when the person that originally hurt you isn't around. So then you have to take up the mantle and hurt yourself the way they hurt you. Absolutely. Until you figure out how not to do that anymore. Right. Once you once you turn eighteen and you head on out or whatever it is, you're mm-hmm. like, okay. Then you go find all the people that hurt you just as bad as whichever parent fucked you up. Exactly. You go find, you go find all those mirrors Mm -hmm. and you get all those mirrors to show you that image Mm -hmm. over and over again. And it's, it's really interesting how we, um, how we, we are the, the victim and the perpetrator live within. Well said. So we went through the trial. Um, my, my mom didn't really have much to do with me from 13 to about 19 yeah so that was those are some tough years to um to not have that kind of support or role model um was your dad remarried at this point yeah so my parents actually both got remarried i met my step parents when i was three so my dad met my stepmom and my mom met my stepdad when i was three and they both got remarried right before and right after i turned five so there were new parents in my life within like three months of each other how'd you feel about that wow i mean that's gotta be confusing i didn't really love it especially probably more so my dad though because i didn't see my dad very much so all i wanted was time with my dad and here's this lady and someone else has taken time you know i'm a little kid i mean that's so you know so it's the old oedipus and uh, electra situation yes yes so I definitely anything that got in the way of time with my dad, sure. which was which was most things, right? It was our visitation schedule. It was custody. It was the divorce. It was then me living in another city. It was also he worked a lot. You know, he worked in finance and the eighties and the nineties. I mean, these were the glory days, Big right? Time. So yeah. he was busy. I mean, I remember being little and being on my visitations and 
he had a, you know he had a car phone even before he had a car phone well, no maybe this is when he had a car phone he had one of remember there were the brick cell phones right there were the brick phones before the brick there was an actual like small briefcase battery pack phone that got carried around i don't know if it had a wire or not but you carried it with you like a small briefcase they came from those military right that, that was Probably, the first gen yes, military yes. To, to civilian so my dad had one <laughs> you know? he was a big mover shaker he was a mover but shaker. the other briefcase filled with cocaine you know <laughs> I, i've never actually asked him if that was it if was that the was 80s. his thing it was the 80s my knowing him i don't know that that was ever really his thing did he have a monochromatic suit <laughs> there were definitely monochromatic suits there were there were um you know there was a mercedes-benz oh, i learned to drive on a giant mercedes-benz it was actually terrifying like it's terrifying it's terrifying when when you're learning to drive and your dad is in the passenger seat saying don't you dare sideswipe my motherfucking bands you're like oh my, oh my god, god. Like, how am i gonna get through this listen any parent listening do not be the one to teach your children how to drive it's so traumatic you well, have to yeah. send them to driving school where there's somebody not related to them telling them how to do it. It's yeah. not okay to teach your kid, unless you're on a farm or something, and can drive into a, into a field of forever. It's so traumatic. Anyway. It's really traumatic. I did go to driver's ed. I did learn. But I went to like, Sears driving school. Oh, that's so funny. Because my daddy was so stressful teaching me. I could not deal. I was like, I'm going to Sears driving school. I can't do this. It's it's really stressful. I remember merging on the freeway for the first time. I honestly thought I was going to pass out. I was like, I'm gonna pass out behind the car, behind the wheel. There yeah. is no brake. Yeah. Everybody's gonna die, but I'm just gonna have to try anyways, you know. But also, if you're gonna teach your kids how to drive, either be okay with your nice car potentially getting demolished, or figure out figure out another vehicle to use because. Don't you dare sideswipe my motherfucking bands! Also, the can of beans really is great. always the gas. Can of beans, always the gas. Don't make the can of beans the brake. That's what the corn is for. <laughs> Wait, what are these cans? <laughs> like, when, when my dad would do his, before he ever got in a car, it was the cans that you line up and your feet had to touch the right thing to be gas and brake. I learned on a stick shift. Oh, I learned on an automatic. Okay. I'm like, what are these cans? I'm yeah, like, oh my God, there's food involved? <laughs> like, I mean, I am Jewish, so we do like there to be food involved, but, you know, I didn't get the beans and the corn. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right, so you go to live with dad and new stepmother. I go to live with dad. Well, stepmother at that point has been married to my dad for eight years, so we've, we've known each other for a while. Um, but, you know, at that point, we, we did not get along. And to to her credit, um, you know she she did a lot for me. I mean, she really did. And if she if she hadn't been there, there's no way my dad would have had the bandwidth to stay in my life. He just wouldn't have. He just wouldn't have had the time. He wouldn't have known what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, she did a lot, and I was never taught to respect her, and so I didn't. And and I'll and I'll take responsibility for that. I mean, I'll take responsibility for being a. For being a, and I was a pretty surly teenager just to boot. I wasn't mean or something, but I was. I like, don't know how parents survive teenagers. Period. Right, because teenagers are by definition Horrible. a giant pain in the I was, ass. Like we're just yeah. emotional. You know, oh, it's just, just it's. And then and then uh, everything if, is huge. 
And if you're listening to, you know, Alice in Chains and Nine Inch Nails in your spare time, it's not going to get any better. Like, it's not going to be any less dramatic. Yeah. It's not going to be any lighter. There's not levity to be found in in that kind of Courtney love. I am doll parts. Right? I yeah. am doll parts. <laughs> you know? Like, ah. Oh, so... So the environment also did not necessarily support anything other than the misanthropic, sullen teenager that I most certainly did my best to embody. Although with my dad, I was always, I mean, we always, even through all of that, got along. When, and then their daughter, my little sister was born when I was 13. So right, right when I moved up there was right when that new baby came. And that was tricky pretty tricky because you know it was like that little family was being formed it's like I was half wanted and half a wrench in the plans is the best way that I could describe it and half a built-in babysitter maybe (laughs) yeah half a built-in babysitter if if one felt that I was trustworthy which I was I babysat for other kids but I don't know if the you know relationship so much existed if I recall my stepmom hired babysitters like I don't think she left my sister with me very much Although lots of other uh, parents left their kids with me. When I was 16, one morning I was woken up. Well, it's funny. I remember laying there. I was laying there in bed. And I saw my dad come in and take my wallet. Like, like, but it was almost like a dream state. I was like, my dad just come into my room and take my wallet? That was weird. And, and then he woke me up a little while later and was like, I need you to get up. I need you to get dressed. And we're going to go somewhere. I was like, okay. I mean, listen, the only person who could deliver information like this to me was my dad. Anyone else, I would be like, no, we're not. I was like, okay, you're my dad. And then, and then this guy who was one of the dads in my carpool, um, honestly, I really didn't like of all the parents. This is one I, I wasn't a huge fan of. He shows up. And him and my dad are like, we're taking you to the airport. You're, you're, going, on a, you're going on a trip. And I'm like, okay. And like, there's a bag that's been packed for me. And I have no way, nobody's telling me where I'm going. Nobody is telling me what happened. Had you been a crazy teenager right before this? Or they... No, I wouldn't, I would not say that. I mean, I was doing, I was, you know, smoking my weed. Sure. And... As you do. As you do. And I think sometimes I was smoking some cigarettes. As you do. Mm -hmm. And I dropped acid a couple times. As you do. Were they aware of this happening? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they were. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had, you know... I had gotten drunk a few times, but I wasn't really, alcohol wasn't something that was, you know, big on my, on my radar that came, came, came in college. And I, but you were still towing the line I and mean, you went to temple and I, did well, all that stuff. I did. And, and I went to one of the best private schools in Seattle and I was getting very good grades. Hmm. Like, so school, but, but school was never an area that I, school was a safe haven for me. School was a place I loved. School was a place that I did well. And I, that's where we differ. Hated it. Hated every second. Yeah. Anyway. I loved school. Ugh. School was where I could. And, and then there were teachers that I could sometimes talk to, you know, or maybe even a counselor, depending on different times in my life. When I was in seventh grade, when I was in seventh grade, and all that preparation was going on for the custody trial, and then the trial happened in, I want to say, it was March, probably March was when the trial was. That whole year up till March was all preparation, and it was very stressful in my home during the preparation, um, and very kind of angry. I just, every day I loved going to school and I would go see the guidance counselor every day because I just needed... Were you staying with your mom during the prep for the trial? Where you had to say, I want to go live with my dad? Yeah, yeah, no, it was was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. It was a a lot. 
I, I remember it. All right, so it's interesting. So neighbor guy. So neighbor guy shows up. Uh, we go. We go to the airport. Nobody's telling me where I'm going. I get put on a plane to Boise, Idaho. Terrifying. I first get, of all, completely terrifying. It's like a little bit kidnappy. Also, oh, well, so usually they hire um, what are called escorts to do this. So usually, you know, I don't know, military guys like come and take the kid and mm-hmm. put him in handcuffs and fly with them. I was, but I wasn't a, but a lot of kids are, who, who end up in these, in these circles are combative. And also, by the way, we now know that those schools were super abusive and horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. They, I'll we're gonna see get if there. I can elucidate on that one for you. They, they are super abusive and horrifying. And so you're 16. So I'm 16. So first, so I get, I get flown to Boise, a friend of ours, like a family friend who I know happens to live in Boise so she meets me at the airport because she is there to get me onto my next flight which is into the middle of nowhere Idaho so one of those like regional flights so then I get to the middle of nowhere Idaho and I'm picked up by a couple of dudes who are like you're coming on a program come with me and um and they take me and drive you know hours and of course I'm mouthing off to them the whole time I mean I'm just like you I have a number of mean things to say to them um, where are you taking me? You'll see when you get there. That's all I heard. You'll know when you need to know. You'll see when you get there. Those are the only answers that, that you get. So they take me out to the middle of nowhere. I get um, I get strip searched. I get reissued. By men or women? I don't remember. I actually don't remember. There had to have been a woman. There had to have Did been there, a woman. Though? Did there, though? It ha- there had to have been a female. I don't know. I have no idea. Because I've, I've been reading up on these places, and not necessarily, unfortunately. I now mean, it's now already, I don't remember. It's all tra- traumatizing and abusive and very sick. I mean, I don't think that I cared at that point. I, I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. at that point, I'm like, I'm being driven into the middle of nowhere by people I don't know to do, I don't know for I don't know how long. Like, surprise, you're an adult. <laughs> right? Well, well, so, um, so I'm reissued, uh, you know, army surplus gear. And basically I spend the next month hiking and learning certain survival skills. And... Handy, but... Yeah. Also and, weird. And very crazy. I do, I do two stints of, of what's called solo, where you're just like out in this hut for four days alone and... Every day we ate a small cup of oats and raisins to start and then hiked all day, no food, lots of water. Um, and then when we got to our wherever we were camping, we got a full mug of uh, rice and lentils. And that was what you ate. I think that we also had some noodles. I think we also had some dried pasta noodles with us. So hungry exercise to a point of exhaustion, probably. Yeah. Was yeah. there abuse? Um, no, there was no, n- there was no abuse on this, on this particular wilderness program. Um, I think that many of them did yeah. come with abuse. I, um, so too. I was not, a, I was not abused, nor did I witness, nor did I witness any, um, any was abuse. Was this Outward Bound? No, Outward Bound is like a, pro- is a program that you choose to go on. Okay. So people electively go on Got Outward it. Bound. <laughs> I just remember kids getting sent to Outward Bound when we were in high school. Yeah, that would have been that would have been nice. <laughs> that would have been lovely. But this was a um, a advanced version of Outward Bound. Um, this was called it was called SUS S U W S. There were other ones um, off the top of my head. There was Red Cliffs Ascent. There was one Provo in Provo, Utah. I mean. 
Anyway, I went on this program. I thought I was going home afterwards because I just disappeared. You know, I didn't get to tell anyone. I didn't get to tell my friends. I was just, I just left. And then I found out while I was there that I wasn't going home, that I was going to a boarding school, a, a special boarding school for the same kids, you know, an, an emotional growth boarding school, a school for aberrant youth. And um, also not a great track record at those places. Those are rife with. Remember before we started the interview, I asked you if I could stop if I needed to go to the bathroom in the middle of the interview? Yeah, so I got that one from, from boarding school. I, and it's funny, I mean, to this moment, like I still am like, oh wait, am I allowed to? So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute why, why I asked you that. Yeah, I got sent to, I got sent to this boarding school. It was, it's called, it, well, it was called the Cascade School and it was in Northern California. I think it went out of, I think it went out of business somewhere in the mid 2000s. Um, so I was there from 90, 95 to 97. And, um, yeah, it is, these emotional growth, aberrant youth boarding schools are, this one was actually started, or certainly started by descendants of members of a cult called Synanon, or Synanon, which was a cult from the 70s. And some people left to start a boarding school in Southern California called CEDU, C-E-D-U, which is probably also not in business anymore. And then some people left Sea-Doo to go start Cascade. So just to give you also an idea of these schools are prohibitively expensive too. Like these, and I say that because the market that they created, I mean, I afterward, I went to Boston University and which was probably still, but certainly at the time, one of the most expensive private universities in the country. And my dad was like, this is like nothing compared to your boarding school. Like this boarding school in the mid nineties was like, you know, once you included all the expenses and flights and whatever, like 75 K a year, which is a ton of money. I mean, I think maybe, you know, maybe graduate schools at top universities by now, including everything are starting to come towards those types of numbers. And, and, and college education in the last 20 years, 25, has just gone so far out of control. It's bonkers. It's bonkers. So, so this is, this is so bonkers. So what happened at this place? So this school, um, this school is, uh, it's it's uh how do, how do I put it um they it, it's sort of the break you down to build you up I suppose type of a model it is very very shaming very so so their whole thing was we don't have physical violence but you can in certain in certain uh, areas or in certain times say anything you want in any way you want to so we had these things called forums so three times a week you would sit in forums and forums was like a circle of people in a room and in forums you were not allowed to leave to go to the bathroom so you could not leave under any circumstance you could not leave the forum you cannot leave to go to the bathroom these things by the way were three to four hours so you had to really like monitor your fluid intake <laughs> you know so among other things so when you went into the forum and this they happen every monday wednesday friday from roughly 2 to 6 p.m or so maybe it's 2 to 5 30 and um and by the way i was at this boarding school for 26 months so i sat through over 300 of these forums where you can say anything you want 
to, to the fellow, kids to a fellow to student. So a fellow student can say anything they want to a fellow student. And frankly, counselors jump in too. And so it is, it is not, hey, I'd like to talk to you about how I'm feeling. It is, we can swear on here, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I try not to swear that much as it, in, in general, but... Um, I mean, it is, you get in there and, and, and people just, you, you would see people have to be at least two seats away from you in order to, it's called an indictment, so in order to indict you. And you would sit down and you would just watch people get up to go across the room when you were like, oh man, and they would go across and be like, you motherfucking cunt, fuck, bitch, fuck you, fuck you, you piece of shit, piece, you know, garbage shit, bitch, whatever. I just, excellent, like, but for like 30 minutes, an hour and you just sat there and you were like and then you know the the counselor or whoever would step in what does it feel like to be such a cunt rachel or whatever <laughs> you know, just, no no seriously and then you're like um you know and then and then they they, they try to work it around to well isn't this just because you hate your mom and then you're supposed to start crying and do your work right so this is all a way into to do your work and 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 you could and you would you know you would run anger as it was called you scream at the floor but you're really just screaming at your dad or you're really screaming at your mom i mean those are the two primary you know people we're working on right or or maybe some other person who caused major harm to you in your life and and so it it was all just this it was but it was verbal attack therapy that's what i was trying to think of a a minute ago It it was like this verbal abuse verbal attack therapy and you couldn't leave the room and i was always one of those i've, I've always been one of those people that people just uh just had a lot of opinions to share about and with and so almost every one of those forums i was getting indicted my first forum i had been at the school for 24 hours i was indicted even the counselor was like wait didn't she just get here did you just get here i was like i did just get here he's like what do you what do you have to yell at her for I'm like sitting there like, yeah, what do you have to yell at me for? Like, I just got here. And, oh, it's been you know, so surreal. It was really surreal. And you know what's interesting is um, Paris Hilton actually speaks out about this. And it's, um, uh, gosh. She just a, went to Congress about it. There's a hashtag. It's um, breaking code silence. That's what it is. It's, hash, it's hashtag breaking code silence. And Paris Hilton went to my school. She went to Cascade. She was there for three weeks. She talked about getting sh- like hosed down and strip searches and shamed and that's that the hose down abuse, and stuff. That was that. uh that's the wilderness program. That's the wilderness program. Um, and I'm glad that she somehow got her parents to talk her to 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 pull her out of there after three weeks. Like good for her because, I, I, like I said, I was there for 26 months. Like it was, it was a lot. It's a lot to go through. Did you? Did you get abused by counselors or did you get abused by other kids? So I, there were definitely times when I could see things going in a direction and I was, I I don't know if you want to call it self-assured or survival instinct or whatever you want to call it enough to be like, yeah, I need you to get away from me. I was, I had, you know, there was a lot of stuff where I was maybe confused on right or wrong, but when it came down to abuse like I knew where the line was and wasn't so there was they they did separate the sexes in terms of like girls really hung out with girls and boys really hung out with boys but there was a lot of touching and a lot of physicality so like we'd have these things they were called smush piles and it was just like a big group of girls all like laying kind of crisscross on top of each other like cuddling I guess is the word for that, but like a big pile and then boys, a big pile of boys 
Although there were a lot of male counselors who would smush with girls. And that certainly happened plenty. And that that was where, like, when I first got there, I remember this one counselor. He was pretty young, too. Like, he was that age where it was, um, you're like, you're, you're an authority figure, but you're also a little too close for comfort. And I remember at one point him being like, I love you, Rachel. You're so, you know, whatever. And I, I understand that, you know, maybe he was like, talking the line of the feelings and stuff because we also were there to like talk about our feelings um but i remember that happened and at that point i i stopped talking to him because i was like that's the that is the only thing you do is you stop like you just stop talking to people like that because that goes somewhere fast and i could recognize that and so as soon as a student shows that they are onto something that is not someone who they that they keep going after. Right, predators. They're looking for prey. Yeah. And I was and I was pretty quick to 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 shut stuff like that down. Um oh, but there, there's a couple of counselors. And there's students. I still so most of most of the people who screamed at me were other girls. You know. And I, I like I mean there's this one girl it still comes to me. Like I can I can still hear her screaming at me. I can still hear her just like cursing me out and screaming at me. Mm. Um Oof! like just yeah I can still because she had this like super high voice and she would just and she would get so mad and she would get so like enraged but we see what a frenzy will do yeah it really like frenzied absolutely yeah Yeah. and it was I mean it was scary and you just sort of you just sort of sit there and take it I mean at a certain point I on the one hand desensitized to it as I was just like well it's Monday Wednesday and Friday so I'm about to go get you know my ass handed to me but I also like developed incredible stomach issues, as you can imagine. Um, and I still have stomach issues to this day. And I think I had some before. I think I always carried some nervousness in my stomach since I was a little kid. But I can pretty directly trace some pretty... I, I mean, I'm, maybe I got an ulcer. You know, I might have. And I remember, I mean, I was just in the bathroom before every one of those forums. You know, just because I was so... I was just... I knew I was about to just be eviscerated. Yeah. You know, and it became, again, I knew it was coming, but my body had extremely physical responses yeah. to Ex- it. Well, that's n- normal, right? Your body, ha- in order for you to have the fight or flight, it has to expel whatever might slow you down. So that's very normal. That makes, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. It makes a ton of sense. That's a protection mechanism that your body has. Get rid of anything. Also, probably to put off scent, is mm-hmm. my guess. Oh, yeah. On sort of a primal level. That was How really- did you get out? I got out because I graduated high school. I went, that's why, I, I mean, 26 months, like I was there. I was, I mean, it was a two-year program. Mm-hmm. So I graduated the program at the same time that I graduated high school. And actually, it's funny because when I turned 18, technically I could have left. Mm-hmm. And by the way, this boarding school was about an hour east into the mountains from Redding, California, which is already nowhere much, mm-hmm. nowhere much. And so um, there was nowhere to go. I mean, kids did run away. But there was really nowhere to go. And Were you, you allowed did, to communicate with your parents? You could communicate with your parents, but I was cut off from all my friends. Nobody ever knew what happened to me. I, I disappeared out of thin air. And, and I finished high school there, so there was no going back. Mm-hmm. There was no... So there was no repairing any of the cut ties. Just like I left Portland at 13, there was no repairing any of those cut ties. Just like I was constantly going between Portland and Seattle, never in one place. There was no, you know, being able to establish into any one place. And then I went and duplicated that in my adult life. You know, always moving around and going new places and just never, never grounding because 
that's what I knew. What changed it? What changed it? Like what helped me to start to learn to ground? Um, well, I starting so so when I was so I went to Boston University after boarding school and Did they look at that and go, wait, where were you? <laughs> you know, in terms of like a reputation, it was just a boarding school in California. I went to boarding school in California. Mm-hmm. I got good grades. I got traditional studies at this place. The reason that my parents chose this particular school, I guess, as opposed to a number of the others, was that this one was the best educational of these kinds of schools. So I was the most, you know, I mean, even I, I went there though. I remember going into, you know, I was in French two at my at my school, you know, and I went into like French four and French five. I mean, it it wasn't on par with where I was at, but you know, I got good grades. My SAT scores were, you know, I didn't get to study for it or anything, but took it. Went to Boston University, um, and then you know, did some stuff after after school, which was mostly partying and as in school you know drinking and drugs like recreational drugs all that you know how did you say to your parents what the fuck did you do send me sending me there or did you just have peace with it oh well when well so when you're there no matter how much you ask to go home i mean they've been heavily trained by the staff to you know, take any of that as, um, you know, your kid is just, you know, doing what they do and manipulating you as they do. And this is why you set them here in the first place, right? Because, you know, so for me, there was no getting out of there. Um, as far as... But graduating, I mean. But the truth is, when you when I graduated, by then, I'd been there for so long, that was what I knew. I knew this little tiny bubble of a world of 150 people in the mountains in Northern California. So six weeks later, going to Boston University was a pretty swift kick in the rear. And I was not, oh, and they kept, you know, I mentioned they kept males and females separate. You weren't allowed to have any relations with the opposite sex while you were there. This is before the time when anybody considered same. I mean, like there were a couple kids there that maybe were, you know, homosexual or whatever but overall I mean nobody was worried about girls and girls and boys yeah, and boys yeah. at all this is mid 90s so um so and, and and my friends were all guys because because they were nice <laughs> you know basically I mean although a couple of my best friends now are actually from are from that school like best girlfriends are, are from that school because um and they're from, they're from Seattle too <laughs> um so uh which I didn't know that before it's just coincidental that we happen to have met in the school and they happen to you know be from seattle interesting um but yeah so so when you leave there you're um it's like stockholm syndrome right like you've been you've been so conditioned and you've been so like i kind of left there and i was like i was just in you know like for all the trauma you know i was in peace love feeling land where we talk about our feelings because there's I mean, we could spend hours talking about this school, all the workshops that they had, all the emotional growth. There was inner child work. There was shadow work. There was there was all that stuff that the truth is, if I were to go there now, I would probably like cutting out the abuse and da, da, da. There's, there's a bunch of richness in the program. There is. But we were kids and we were being abused, you know? We were also, we lived in like dorms that were, everything was groups. You know, everything was a, a big group. So something that really happened to me afterwards was becoming very, very, like, withdrawn. 
not from people overall, but kind of. I mean, I, tr- I was like, when I went to college, I got my own, I got, I signed up for a single dorm. <laughs> my dad was like, what did you do? I was like, well, they sent me a piece of paper and asked if I wanted a single. He was like, did you look at the differential of like what that entails? You know, like, I was like, I don't know. I just filled out a form. You, I was at a school. Nobody helped me. I just checked a box. They asked me if I wanted a single. I said yes. You know, I was just like, because after living with all those people in my space and all these girls and all this, all this touch that I did not consent to and that I never liked and that I never wanted, but that I had to do in order to be a part of the program. I mean, I got yelled at enough for not being, you know, toe in the line or whatever. Mm. It was really, it was really invasive and it was really violating. And I went really far in another direction. My best friend and I talk about this a lot. Like she, because of all the numbers, she became somebody who found safety and always having people around her. And I really became someone who ha- who found safety by really keeping everybody really far away and keeping some, you know, control over my solitude and my environment because having people bodily come in bodily autonomy i mean bodily autonomy that's right i i didn't have my body my body autonomy was taken at the same time i never learned how to interact with the opposite sex i never got to practice i never got to learn so going back out in the world was very scary and i definitely had over the years a number of steep learning curve types of experiences with men where i just i was i was not prepared and I think that that was honestly one of the biggest disservices was not allowing, because once you reached a certain, like your last six months, six months at the school, they did allow you to have your dating privileges, as they called them, where you could like date a classmate or whatever, but they never, they wouldn't allow me to do it because I was always pegged as someone who had a lot of friendships with boys and not enough with women. And so I needed to stay away from boys and keep focused on the girls and it's like, okay, but that's not that's not a life skill that's going to help me. Like, you got to give me some life skills that are going to help me. Mm-hmm. Especially if you identify that I'm someone who, who tends to gravitate towards men, then please give me a chance to learn how to interact with them. You know? Like, and not in terms of smushing. You know, and not in terms <laughs> of smushing. I just, oh, I just want a normal... Nothing, nothing. What about. an awful word also to oh, give it. Oh, smushing. I am awful. Honestly, you just said it and I was like, Ooh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's awful. Totally I, mean, I just, I, I heard it come out of a different mouth and I hadn't heard it in a long time. And I was like, that's mm. a tough word. Yeah. Yeah. Not okay. Not okay. So, so be, so Boston University was, um, surprising, mm. you know, and, was, and, and I chose to go very far away from where. I had inhabited my life to date. That was wild. And then after school, I just kind of, I mean, I worked and like I worked to live. You know what I mean? I wasn't like on a try. I majored in psychology. I did very well. I was on this honor society and that honor society and graduated magna cum laude and all that stuff. Um, None of that stuff is, is particularly super interesting to me, right? Because those aren't things that, like, it's great. I did what I was supposed to do. I went to college. And then I went to graduate school. Because I'm like, that's what you do. You know? Like, that's what you do for my like for my family. What's your master's in? Uh, my MBA. Yeah. So I went to business school. I went to Georgetown um, from 2004 to 2006. Well, you love expensive schools. <laughs> I love me those East Coast schools. Cha-ching. Uh, yeah. 
yeah, hey, listen, we got to make the economy go round. Uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting few years between college and graduate school. Again, a lot of partying, a lot of just sort of, I don't know. I mean, it's like I woke up. I feel like, I feel like. Maybe I'm Winkle. <laughs> well, I was going to say, have you seen, have you seen Legally Blonde? Yeah. You know, you know, when, um, with their, she, she's like submitted her video admissions essay or whatever. They're like, I wonder if she just woke up one day and thought, I guess I'll go to law school. And then the guy's like, well, lapse of judgment aside, you know, we'll let her in or whatever. And I, I woke up one day and I was like, I guess I should go to graduate school. Like it was just, I just wasn't doing all that much, but I was having fun and trying to live life and learn. Um, you had a lot of catching up to do. Making up for lost time college and grad school learning how to be a fully functioning human did it did it take a while to get there did it come online pretty quickly oh no i would say it was definitely not um not an innate process it was not an innate process um when i went to graduate school i went to graduate school to go to school and that was actually back then this whole we talk a lot about the mind-body connection now Right? Sure. And I work in the field of mind-body connections. And it just, but it wasn't something that was talked about so much then. Of course, you had people doing yoga and you had all that kind of stuff. But it was still quite fringe as compared to the way things are now. I mean, this is... This is in 90... No. Uh, 2004. 2000, but yeah. I mean, if you go back, you go back 18 years from now, from right now, 18 years. Like, what's happened in the last 10, 12 years is totally just pretty much with the rise of Instagram it's it's just totally totally changed literally everything we know and the way we exchange information and the way that we popularize concepts in life and learn and all of that um so when I got to graduate school for a bunch of reasons um I I was I was dating someone and I thought it was the love of my life and then he didn't end up moving with me and that was really difficult to deal with and then I was in this new city in this new school and I'd never taken a business course in my life Almost all of my colleagues were either business, finance, or econ undergrad. I was a psych undergrad. I just felt like a little bit of a fish out of water. I was like Elle Woods. Nobody likes me. I, you know, I, I'm the one in a red dress while everybody's wearing a black suit. Probably the only one that could start a fire with just a rock and a. I was definitely the only person who could start a fire with a the you know flint, side uh, of the flint, the flint yeah. and the rock and spark and the blow the tinder bundle and mm-hmm. yeah, definitely Good skill. But- Right, I'm not the worst. You wouldn't think it to to you know know me, but I'm not the worst person to get stuck in the woods with. So I, due to a bunch of different circumstances, I was I was having, I was having some anxiety, and I was having I wasn't sleeping all that well, and I was having some physical pain. So I went to student health. I mean, I did what you're. I don't know. I did what made sense. I went to the doctor, right? So they gave me Ambien for sleep, and they gave me Xanax for anxiety, and they gave me Vicodin for pain. And as someone who as someone who had done a lot of drugs at that point, a lot of different drugs, but again, recreationally, it was always recreational. I had boundaries, you know, what you did on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning, whatever. You didn't carry into a Monday. I had I had some good rules in place. I just I didn't know. I just didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't like I didn't know what was going to happen when I got prescribed things that you take regularly. Well, also that's quite a cocktail. Yeah, yeah. And listen, I mean, I took the Ambien for a long time. I took the Xanax for a long time, whatever. But I take it or leave it. That Vicodin, though, that went that went right in. It just, it just, you know, our bodies are all designed differently. 
And for some people, they take opiates and it makes them feel sick. Or some people take them and it makes them feel really drowsy. It makes them feel disoriented. And for me, it just, it was like, um, how have I... How have I lived without this? How have I lived without this? Where have you been all my life? You know, actually, it's interesting. I tried. I I remember my mom had an operation, and so I tried Oxycontin before. You know, I just, like, tried, you know, because, again, I'm experimental. Um, And, I mean, I liked it, but it's just really different when things get prescribed to you, and it's okay to take them, and they come from a doctor. It's just, it's a different, it's, like, a different mindset. I had had no no idea that I was going to become... A drug addict. I just didn't know. And I mean, part of me looks back and it's like, well, you should have known. I mean, you weren't inexperienced with drugs. It's not like you didn't know. It's not like, you know, I knew not to do cocaine too often. But I think that's, you, but it was you bring up a good point. It's different. You've got a doctor prescribing it. You have bona fide pain. And that's why the opioid crisis got to be the level that it is. Yeah. Because it, especially for white women mm-hmm. which got prescribed it a lot and I, now white men too but yeah. white women especially there was a time frame where that was just the go-to absolutely drug absolutely i mean and you know it starts with vicodin sometimes then it becomes like a couple every day and then it becomes a couple a couple times a day because the receptors you know, are not feeling the thing anymore and you have to keep pushing you have to keep pushing yeah i i explain it like a receptor it's it's a mouth and every time you feed that mouth that mouth gets a little bit bigger mm. and then you just need to put a little bit more to get the same level of satiation and then you just need a little bit more for the same level and that mouth just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and 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 then you can just really never quite fill it because it becomes so big and so vast and you just can't fill it. How many pills are you taking at your height? Well, yes. So at the height, have you ever taken a Percocet? Like, have you ever, t- ever taken... I am one of those people that get physically ill. You get physically ill? Wow, okay. I, ha- I get barfy. Yeah. I yeah. did morphine once after surgery and it was fun, but also barfy. And then you don't poop for like two weeks, you know. It causes some serious, serious trouble to your body. At the, so at the time, by the time I got to my height, I was taking the equivalent of 200 Percocets a day. Holy shit. It, yeah. How are you affording that? Because that can't be cheap. It was completely cheap. It was covered by insurance. It was five dollars a month. That level? Five dollars a month. Well, so when you just spoke to how how a you know, I guess well presented, nice, beautiful white woman. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, anything. How did I afford it? It was the cheapest thing that I could do. One, I, say, I think it was some my, one my, acupuncture appointment in a month cost me more than yeah, yeah. Uh, they were five dollars. I guess it's not like that anymore. Now they they well they have all these checks and balances because of what happened to yeah. people like me. And once you get routed into a pain management clinic, forget it. That's just drugs being pushed on you. They used to give me fentanyl. I got prescribed morphine. Like what was? Did you know what the underlying pain was? And I meanwhile, mean, I, mean, I got diagnosed your... with fibromyalgia at some point. Oh, that was a big one back then. Oh, it's right? huge because they didn't know what to do with you. Yeah. So your fibromyalgia. Uh, how are your kidneys doing during all this? Well, I mean, I'm surprisingly healthy, and I was somehow quite, I guess, health. Not okay, not healthy. I mean, I was. I was all, all that good food I was fed as a child somehow carried me because... Those oats and raisins, man. Those oats and raisins, those rice and lentils, man. Thank God she had a month of rice and lentils because really fortified That her. is so many pills. 
Plus, I would have, but plus I would take a you know few Xanax and yeah. a handful of muscle relaxers and some Ambien and whatever other. And was this checking you out, or were you conscious and moving through your life, really adapting to that feeling? Because some people do that. They're. I was yeah no I was I mean, you, you lead two lives. Mm. You lead your. I'm going to present as much of a productive thing as I can, and I'm going to do that so that I can have my only thing that I care about, which is my life as an addict, right? Mm-hmm. So it becomes, you're really like a double agent. I mean, it's the best way I can describe it. It's like you're really a double agent. You are, you are two people in one. You know, it was really tough because, of course, people who knew me knew there was very much stuff wrong. And if you got to know me, I mean, if you got to start, to, if you started to spend like real quality time around me, you, the, the holes were very apparent. But I was very much able to overall present so I, I mean I left graduate school very much addicted to opiates I finished graduate school and and actually I was so exhausted after graduate school I was home um I had like, I guess maybe adrenal I had adrenal fatigue like my adrenals my cortisol like everything just stopped working so for a number of months I was just home and I actually couldn't do very much other than go fill my prescriptions <laughs> that I could go do yeah it's like big day today I got dressed and I went to Walgreens you know um but then I kind of like somehow just I was like you gotta get yourself together and I moved back to San Francisco and started working at you know some big companies in in finance um strategy and finance but your dad was proud you know what I was always trying to I was always trying to make people proud if I could Mm. and then I would just but I was I, I was too I was too I was too high to stay at those kinds of jobs I couldn't do it it required too many hours it required, I could do it for a while, I could do it. Because I could use my limited hours of productivity to somehow shade the whole day, right? So if I could be productive for two of the nine hours or whatever that I was there, I could I could figure out how to make that look like I'd been productive all day. I feel like that's most people in corporate world, but That yeah. is totally most people in the corporate world. <laughs> but I guess. Also, I have described people who are on drugs, are not on drugs, and everywhere in between basically the taking corporate world. two hours of their day and making it look like they did stuff for nine or ten or whatever. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> so welcome to corporate America. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was I, I did it for as long as I could. And, you know, I, in some ways, that is what helped me to, and because I was still in pain, I started, I started doing Pilates more and more. I discovered it maybe when I was around 23 was the first time I did it. And then I was in pain and sitting at a desk was the worst. Just the, I was like, oh man, I can't sit at a desk. How do I get out of this? I gotta get out of this. I'm going to die at a desk. Like it's ruining my body. I'm like, after a week, I was like, oh my God. So, so I started doing Pilates because it was really therapeutic and it felt really good and I felt super good doing it. And then I was like, wait, why don't I do this? This is nice. I like doing this. Why don't I help other people do this? And also I was like, well, this also seems pretty flexible. Seems like you can probably arrange a schedule that you could manage because you have this ability to like be high and then you can have your like functional hours and then you can be high again. So I just, you know, I was trying to, I was, I was trying, I was trying to make it work. Did you have an awareness then? You're like, oh shit, I am deeply into this addiction. Oh, I was, yes. I was like, you are, you were trying are. to talk yourself out of it. No, no. I was like, even when I graduated from grad school, I was like, you're a drug addict. Um, okay, well, this is something that you weren't expecting. In fact, I remember getting to graduate school and being like, 
Yay! I made it to 25! I did not, you know, whatever, ride off of the PCH on the back of a motorcycle with another coked up dude going 100 miles an hour and I made it. You know what I mean? I was, I was like excited. I was like, I did it. I did it. I got through those years. I wasn't sure if I was going to. I drank a lot. I drank and drove a lot. Let's be honest. I did. I mean, I was not... I was not really particularly concerned with my own mortality. But I wasn't, like, again, wasn't trying to, like, hurt myself. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to have fun. But I, I thought, I'm like, I, I got through that. I got through all the part, you know, the partying and stuff. And then, and so I just, it's like I wasn't expecting it. And so then when I left graduate school, I was like, you, yeah, you're an addict. And then I moved to San Francisco, still an addict. And then I, I moved to L.A., actually. So I lived in L.A. for a brief amount of time. Uh, while I did all of my Pilates training uh, later in the later late 2000s um, and I, I honestly I thought I was going to die in LA I was like I'm just going to die in LA so moving back here has actually been a pretty it's like been this redemptive moment it's it's I can I can tell you more a little later about about moving back here and kind of how that transpired but not expected and really beautiful and quite the um this is a place, of all the cities I've lived in, I was like, I can't stand L.A. L.A. is the place that I almost died. L.A. is the place I thought I was going to die. I'll never go back there. L.A. is terrible. L.A. is not terrible. I was going through terrible things. That's it. Did you almost die? Um, so, so all of these drugs that, that I used in, as, you, as I've told you, very excessive quantities, and I was probably at least 15, maybe more pounds... Thinner. Like I, I was like this little person taking these quantities of drugs that should have every doctor's like, how are you alive? Like, how did you not die? Well, I'm not sure. But but someone was looking over me. Like, I, I mean, that's the best I can say is I was being I was being watched out for. And there was there was a point at which um, and this is deep in the years of like now we've got Anna Nicole Smith, Heath Ledger, Michael Jackson. I mean, now it's starting to be like, whoa, prescription drugs are like killing people and I was right there in it and I'm just like oh that's pretty scary like famous people are dying so you were getting the awareness I was starting to get some awareness and I even started going to my doctors um I would go in and I and I'd say I was like listen I think I'm in trouble like I'm like not only am I a, dr a drug addict but like, I'm kind of afraid I might die soon I'm afraid like I'm afraid that this is getting to be too much like I'm hitting like a saturation point and they'd be like you're not an addict you're physically dependent on your medication. Here, here's some more because you're still in pain. Every time I went in, my prescription got bigger and bigger. Just like, here's a, here's a higher dose. Oh, we have this new drug, fentanyl. Um, why don't we try you on some fentanyl? You're lucky you didn't die. Yeah, although at least it was pharmaceutical fentanyl. It wasn't street fentanyl. Right. I mean, it was... But, again, I was a drug addict. I didn't use the fentanyl or any drugs. At a certain point, as they were all prescribed, I didn't use them as prescribed. You don't use them as prescribed. You find your ways, you know? So I got these fentanyl patches, and I and I would cut them into squares, and then I would put them under my tongue because sublingual application is, is a very absorb it's a very absorbing way to, to take Like LSD. Drugs. Like LSD. Um, <clears throat> like another drug that I, I ended up get, being on for 10 years, which is called Suboxone, which is like methadone, um, which they use. They use it to wean you off, isn't it? Yeah, they use it when you go to rehab. Yeah. Except for they never wean me off. Um, so you were doing pills and the... No, the Suboxone was... Once I, so once I realized, um, I was like... I had this like 
realization after um, I'm taking all these drugs and I had like a number of times where I like would sort of kind of come to like <gasps> and I, I'd like I'd stop breathing I'd stop breathing and because that's what these drugs do you stop it's usually why you die like you, you mm-hmm. pass out and you stop breathing you physically just don't take in air for X amount of time and you die um, or potentially you asphyxiate on vomit but I mean I, I that's not what was happening for me you just stop breathing you fall asleep and you don't breathe and so I was having these moments where where I was like you have to stay awake like you are in a critical moment and you have to stay awake because if you fall asleep now you're gonna die and you have to stay awake and it was usually just like a couple of hours it was like this couple even maybe one hour couple hour critical period where all of that like the peak of the effect of all of those drugs was just like in my system hard mm-hmm. and I just I was like your only mission right now is to stay awake and breathe. That's stay alive. You got to just do it. And I would yeah. get myself through and I'd get myself over that. Like, just, you know, when you're over the hump, like, you know, I don't know how to explain. You just, you know. And once that happened enough times, I was like, we are, we are close to not waking up. Like you're, you're so hitting I, critical mass at this point. It was just, it was really it was scary too. Mm-hmm. And I, um, and then one day I just had this voice. And I mean, now I, you know, it, in the, it's, it's in those moments when you, when you feel completely abandoned that in retrospect, you can look back and go, oh, I was quite watched, you know, and I was quite protected. And it was like this voice came to me and it just said, in the next 30 days, you're either going to die or you're going to go to rehab. So it's time for you to choose which one. And so I was like, all right, I got to I got to choose. So I'm going to choose rehab. I'm going to choose not to die. My mom is not going to get called by the LA County coroner and have to come down here and identify my body. Like, that's not that's not what's happening. We can't do that. I can't do that to her. I mean, forget me, you know, like I can't do that to her. So, um, and I just had this image too. I was like, Oh my God, one of these people found in her apartment in West Hollywood. Like this is just, this can't happen. Freaking LA. You know, I was like, no, so cliche. So cliche. I was like, no, no, I will not do that. So my best friend came, I, I, I somehow managed to get my stuff packed up and my best friend came down. I had two cars at the time, so I got in a new car and I had my old car and we packed up my cars and we drove back to Portland and then she went back to Seattle where she was at the time and I, cause I, I needed supervision at that point. Like I had to go home. Like I couldn't, I was clearly not able to be on my own and I some I somehow got myself, I mean, I found, I found my own rehab. Like I did all, I don't know how. You didn't tell your parents? Well, I mean they knew at this point that things were bad and I mean I came home because I was like I gotta make some kind of a change or fix something or you know and I I'd graduated from my Pilates program I had gotten my certification I'd gotten certified you know so I'm sort of like it's time to transition you know I mean I can, I can play that and also I think I need to find a rehab you know I just I I, I really always tried to keep that dying part of me from the moment I was born until not all that long ago, pretty tightly held yeah. and under wraps sure. and somewhat protected from other people in the best way that I could. If you knew me well, you would know that things were wrong. But even my mom and my dad, nobody knew the extent. Nobody knew because I... Parents are the last to know in general. I yeah. Feel like, anyway. Yeah. I mean, and you don't... They don't see us. No, they, really. they, they, they don't want to see. Mm. I mean, they, they don't want to see that level of pain. It's, it's like some kind of physical block, mm. you know, to seeing that, your child in that kind of pain. Um, I mean, I remember my mom in the ER with me one time when 
something went wrong and the doctor saw like a prescription bottle and was like are, what and she was like i didn't know that she took those kinds of amounts like i just i didn't know you know and that doctor's like lucky that kid's alive and it was just i'm sure that was a scary moment for her she's was very this an od you know, moment or was this a just a general emergency no no it was more of an it was more of a i don't know od adverse reaction type of moment Got which it. you know i had a few of those um yes Yes, there's some stories, that, not 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 many, but there are a couple stories of those. Um, so, so I went to rehab, and in, in uh, Oregon, I actually went to rehab in Northern California. I found a this place called Cascade. <laughs> a place called Cascade. I don't know how do I end up always in Northern California for for pivotal emotional experiences. Um, I have I have never drunk ayahuasca in Northern California, so there is that. I should probably head up there. I should probably head to Tahoe and find me a nice medicine circle. Uh, I found a, I found a rehab that was like a nice one. You know, I wanted to go to a, like a, a nice place, and I had really good insurance. Yeah, I spent a month at rehab, and that's and they and they and they your DTs must have been brutal. So I had been through withdrawal multiple times before that, and drug withdrawal is one of the most painful. <laughs> I think the cat on cue. The cat is like, Rawr. it's like oh, I feel you. It kind of sounds. It feels like the sound of that. It is. Um, I mean, if you've ever seen like a fishing show and they catch the big fish and then they take that machete and fillet that thing and it just guts fly everywhere. It's a pretty good image for what it feels like to go through drug withdrawal. It's yeah. just. Most of us have seen train spotting. Mm, train spotting, yeah. And I don't know if you've seen Dope Sick on Hulu. I need to watch it. I hear it's incredible. It is. I watched it. It was. Uh, that must have been hard. It was not the easiest watch. It was not the easiest watch. Um, I think it was the verbiage that Purdue Pharma came out with that. I was like listening to them, you know, the double the dose and the pain scale and like these things. They really instituted these things like into our pain management or our pain or our hospital or whatever system. Yeah. Big money. Big money. And, um, you know, it's funny, a bunch of years later, I ended up actually training in, when I lived in New York. Um, I trained a couple members of the Sackler family uh, for Pilates. I didn't know at the time. Like, I didn't know at the time who they weird. were. That's weird. Isn't that interesting? Um yeah, it's really interesting. So um, that's by the way the family that created the the family that created the opioid epidemic. Yeah, Purdue exactly. Pharmaceutical is uh, yeah the Sackler family owns yeah. Purdue or, or used to own I guess Purdue Pharmaceutical and yes they quite they quite single handedly created a massive massive drug epidemic in the United States specifically toward people that look like you and I specifically towards people that look like you and I and also specifically towards like poor people in rural communities who were then all that was the trickle down i mean it became what the what crack the crack epidemic which was created i think to make sure that poor people stayed as poor and drugged out as humanly possible flooded into the markets that stuff is so well orchestrated yeah well and and that really fuels the thing is is that fuels heroin addiction though because those people those people in poorer communities Mm. They get a couple months, and then they get cut, mm. and then they're on the streets for heroin. That's what happened to my my eldest brother. He uh, he had back surgery mm. and mm. was started with the pills. It kept hyping up, hyping up, hyping up. Eventually, 
heroin. He went to heroin. But did he go to heroin because they would they eventually stopped prescribing? Right, and he was right, and he couldn't, he, and it wouldn't touch the pain anymore. So no. he just would do the heroin, and then the heroin was out of control, of course. Yeah. But he did say quitting cigarettes was harder than quitting heroin, which I've used that anecdotally on this show several times. But I just think it's important for people to hear how addictive they make cigarettes. It's it's very much on purpose to enslave people. Absolutely. Anyway. Absolutely. The one they put. And, and and it's it's, I mean it's le- it's it's less the nicotine and more the chemicals. Like oh people who people who it's in in you know let's say, I don't know some kind of more, um, indigenous community who who smoke. What they've grown. What what they've grown right. or sacramental tobacco and whatever. It's not they're not experiencing this addiction mm-hmm. because it's it's not it's not just nicotine it's not just tobacco it's like these chemicals and people are just mm-hmm. so messed up by all of these chemicals oh my gosh we could spend a whole episode I mean, talking about chemicals crazy. i know it's so crazy anyway okay so back to you so it's time to go to rehab you're in rehab i go to rehab and so they moved me on to a medication called suboxone and suboxone is like methadone um it's a, it's a say it's an analog to methadone it's just instead of having to line up at a methadone clinic every single day and watch them you know have them watch you drink your you know tang or whatever they mix it with um, they can give you a month's supply at a time, or if they, once they really trust you, maybe give you two months at a time. And it is, it's, it's still an opiate. You're, you are still a drug addict. You are still addicted to a drug, but it is a long acting opiate and it goes into your system and it, it just, it, it, it takes all of these peaks and valleys and turns it into a little bit of a even path. Mm-hmm. It's a, they have legal methadone clinics mm. in other countries where they where there's active heroin addicts that they're they're like let's just get you on the methadone yeah yeah like I mean, the methadone here too oh no i know my brother tried three times third time was the charm yeah yeah well yeah. they have other countries. but i mean in other countries it's a well it's a well-oiled machine i should put it, it is, that way yeah. i know it's legal here and that they have methadone clinics but it's it comes with a lot of baggage yeah. a lot of uh, judgment and shame yeah. whereas in other countries like we know you're addicted to this thing we're going to help you just exist it's called harm reduction you're referencing harm reduction yeah. which is a really important important thing that mm-hmm. i'm hopeful that we bring into our system more because shaming people that are already in pain I, it's just ridiculous why are we shaming people yeah. you know and if you if you really want to get technical with it right if we really want to get um if we really want to go to the pu- you know go to public health and we want to go to policy helping people to do things that they're gonna do anyways and do it more safely and do it more securely and whatever it's actually much better for public health you reduce hiv you reduce hep c you reduce 100%. bloodborne infections you yes. reduce the you know it's the like sex should be legalized yes it's yeah. why all of these and things regulated. like yeah. you know give people support doing what they're going to do anyway instead of them being you know filled with diseases and running to the er every moment because they've been injured yeah, the long run cost analysis is a no-brainer, but a nobody no-brainer. wants to go that far down the line because in the moment they're making a shit ton of money, making, making a lot of money. sure you feel a like shit, b are gonna keep that line of addiction going. Yeah, we're not spiral. We're not in the in the act of helping people. Not so much. Not so doesn't much. Doesn't make money really. No, no, it doesn't make money. Keeping people addicted makes money. Mm-hmm. So and yeah, I was. Dang, that's a whole other book. I, I mean, know, I know. There's, there's it's so like, much. Oh, there's like so much to talk about. Oh my gosh. It's probably like, Jesus, I'm depressed now. But this is good. It's important conversation to have. And I feel like 
we're we're pretty far in, but we, we like we still haven't touched so much good stuff. But let's let's get far. Let's get far. You're so, gonna have so, to come on the show again. Obviously, yes, please. Yeah. I feel like we need to devote a whole um, a whole episode to speaking on psychedelics and the way that those I would love medicines that. Yeah, because you've, you've touched in. I mean, you've, we've had conversation about it, just sort of skimming the surface. I would love to go into a deep dive about that in its own. It, you know, you'll come back yeah. and have its own episode. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to try ayahuasca. Mm. It's on my list of things that I want to do. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I have some, you know, some good direction I hope yeah, I could provide. Um, Everybody's you know. like, what? They're like, oh. I've talked about it before. They're, they're used to it. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we should we should be talking about this more. Absolutely. Um, so, okay, you're in rehab. You're getting, you're so getting treatment. So, on the Suboxone, I'm able to put my life back together to an extent. Um, I, you know, I'm teaching more. I'm back in Portland. I'm in Portland for a number, not a number of years, but for like, oh, four years or whatever. And then I moved to New York. And I was in New York for seven years before I moved here. Sober at this point? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm on, I'm on the Suboxone. I'm on, you know, yeah, I'm on the Suboxone. Mm-hmm. Um, in New York. Yeah, in, in Portland, and then I moved to New York. Yeah, I'm just trying to get a timeline. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so so then I moved to New York, and so, you know, start over again, right? Always moving every however many years, every few years, always moving. I mean, I, I lived in New York for seven years. That's the longest stretch I've, I've lived, I think, anywhere. Mm. Seven years. So, yeah, moved there, you know, started it, again, started at zero and just built myself up and built myself up, you know, with Pilates, and I had already... Um, and I was also, I mean, I'm a certified, you know, certified personal trainer. And then I also was doing in-home healthy cooking, which I still do. I go to people. So then I got, uh, you know, nutrition certification and, um, and then, you know, so I'm, I'm doing, you know, Pilates and in-home healthy cooking Wait, and all this stuff. Explain that really quick. Cause I don't know that people know what that means. Uh, like you cook meals for so, people. Yeah. So basically I, it's sort of like a, like a bespoke, like a bespoke cooking service. So I'll go to people's homes and I'll cook them a week's worth of healthy food. You know, as Stick opposed to like a dinner, they can put it all in the fridge, yeah. freezer, wherever it's meant to go. And then they have all of this healthy food. I do it to their specifications, to their, mm-hmm. you know, to their dietary specs and all of that. Um, and it's really nice. I mean, and people, people who are busy, you know, and not eating healthy and just have too much to do, which is, and, most, which of is most of us. It's been, it's been a really important evolution to get there. And that, and a lot of that evolution also transpired in New York, you know, going from being that hard, hard pushing, you know, instructor or hard pushing whatever to, um, you know, really helping people to embrace who they are. Um, and it mirrors my own journey, mm-hmm. you know, it mirrors my own journey. Um, after, after all those years on, um, on Suboxone at a certain point, I said to myself, you are still a drug addict and, and, it's funny, I had heard of ayahuasca when I was about 28, and I was already deep in, and you can't, you can't take ayahuasca when, you, um, when you're on any of these other drugs. I mean, it, it's, it really, there's a lot of interaction effects. And you um, were saying even with certain foods. Yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole dieta, there's a whole, there's a whole preparation. I mean, this is why we need an episode to talk about, mm. about this kind of stuff, um, but there's a lot of preparation that goes in, and and so you want to have you know these entheogenic medicines, mostly. I mean, different ones require different things. But um, ayahuasca in particular, you really need to distance yourself from quite a number, if not most, Western medications. Was that um, scary to think about? 
Well, so when I first heard of ayahuasca 15 years ago, I was like, well, that's not an option for me because I am committed. <laughs> I am committed to Oxycontin, so ayahuasca can take a hike. My, my, one of my best friends, her father passed away about five years ago, and it's funny, when her father died, it's like she, out of the blue, she went on this you know, huge kind of journey of trying to work with her father passing, and I went on the journey with her, mm. and um, someone she knew, or one of her um, one of her family members who was also close with her dad, ended up going to a place in Costa Rica, which is where I ultimately went to drink ayahuasca. And I was like, "Oh, there's that ayahuasca circling back ten years later. Wonder why that's up in my field again. Wonder why I'm hearing about that again." And then I looked at it again, and I was like, "Oh, I'm still on drugs that you can't be on." I'm still on, I still can't take ayahuasca. Had you weaned down to a smaller amount? Does it, was that part of the program? Or not, not really. I had tried to self-wean at a certain point, and then I, a doctor put me back on, and then that doctor was like, you can just kind of stay on this forever. And I'm like, what do you mean I can stay on this drug forever? He's like, yeah, you can get pregnant, have a baby. They'll just, I mean, the baby will be a little bit of an opiate addict. You know, it's like having a baby that's like a little bit addicted to heroin, but then, but then, you know, there'll be some in your breast milk, so you'll just sort of wean the baby off that way. And I was just, I listened to this, and, and somewhere in that, I think it was in that moment that I was like, this is absurd. Holy somewhere, sh- I was like, somewhere along the line, I'm going to have to figure out how to do something about this. I, for the sake of whatever it is I do for my future, I don't know what that is, but somehow I have got to figure out how to make some next step. I have got to figure this out. I've got to figure it out. If I ever want to drink ayahuasca, I have to get off. Also, how wackadoodle is it that a a doctor said, oh, your baby will be born addicted, but don't worry, your breast milk will slowly wean it off. I can't. That's wackadoodle do. I can't even. It was in that moment that I was like, you got to find a way. I was like, you got to find a way. You got to find a way. Like, this medical system Broken. is not going to help you. You're going to need to figure out how to help you. <laughs> and I was like, and it was really daunting because I was like, man, I've been through so much with this. I mean, back in the day, like, I mean, the extra the extra stuff that you have to do to deal with the body that is was taking in this much, um, taking in this many opiates, I mean, it messes up your systems on so many levels. And how many years now would that have been? I was on these, I was on opiates for almost 15 years. Yeah, okay. Yeah, almost okay. 15 years. So so before I turned 40. Did you poop ever? <laughs> well, for, so for some years, I, I, there's a, I, I've gotten hundreds of colonics, hundreds of colonics because I couldn't. And then magnesium is actually wonderful. Magnesium is wonderful. But I also, for a number, a few years there, I was on like intense laxatives. So mm-hmm. my whole system was really just getting mm-hmm. buried. Like Because long-term laxative use, your body adjusts to that even. And then it stops doing the, the muscular movement. Peristalsis. It's yeah. called peristalsis. And it stops. It, it, there are far-reaching effects. Mm-hmm. Far, far-reaching effects. Mm-hmm. Um, dietary, too. Because you don't care what you eat. Like, actually, opiates have a, have a huge... Um, correlation with sugar so you so it's it's the dopamine hit mm. so if you've ever seen one of those cop shows and they bring the drug addict into the into the room they give it like they give the drug addict like an orange juice or a coke or a candy bar sugar they're just mainlining sugar because it helps to take the edge off a little bit so i, I reached a point where i pretty much also ate candy so here i am worth working in health and wellness by the way i work in health health and wellness i cook for people whatever and but in my own time I just eat like a giant bag of candy every day and I throw in a green juice and a chicken breast just to make it seem legit to myself because I'm trying to legitimize myself to myself. And 
so yeah on this journey of discovery on this journey of my friend going through you know dealing processing the death of her father and then ayahuasca re-enters the picture and then my doctor says this and, and somewhere in there i'm like i've got to get off of this i've got to get off i've got to figure this out so <laughs> so i started researching like how to get off of suboxone and and suboxone is the hardest thing to get off of it's i mean like in terms of opiates because it's so long acting and it binds to your, it binds in your system so much and it binds to receptors much harder than, than Oxycontin, much harder. It's still, a, it's still a, a quick acting opiate. So, I mean, anyways, I found, long story short, I found a program. It was an eight day detox. It took eight, it takes eight days to get this out of your system. So you get put into drug withdrawal every day for eight days. Damn girl. It was, so it was brutal. It was brutal. So my mom had to come because you need you need somebody supervising you twenty four seven. You have to, she had to take my vital signs like all the time. Had a whole cocktail of different medications that she had to give to me all the time to keep you from dying from because the withdrawal could kill you. With, withdrawal can kill you, um, very much. At that at, at that level too. At the amounts that I was on for the time that I was on. I mean, it's just, it's very dangerous. It's just dangerous, but I mean, dangerous, but necessary. You gotta do it. I mean, if you want to, you know, again, I'm like, am I, you know, do I, do I figure out how to have some kind of, um, say in my life or does this, does this drug call the shots for me forever? Mm. I mean, cause these drugs, like you're such a slave to the drugs. It's like even the idea of going on a trip, you know, say someone's like, Hey, let's go to, let's go on a vacation. You're like, wait, do I have enough drugs? Do I have enough with me? What happens if I lose a bag? I got to make sure I have twice the supply, but in two different bags. Wait, what happens if I lose the second bag? Okay, maybe I put some extra here. Okay, well, what if I run out of my prescri- prescription? What if I can't get back in the country? Like, but I don't want to go. So so your mom shows up for you. So she, so she comes and we go to a facility in Virginia and she gets to babysit her, you know. By the way, she, she never loved that I was loved she did not like that I was on this drug right like she was just like I can't believe you're on this drug still I can't believe you're on this drug so long I can't believe they leave you on this I can't believe any of this so when I called her and I was like mom I I found a program I'm gonna get off she's like when where let's go you know so she she so I I got I got a hotel and it was it was a it was a wild experience like so if you know what Narcan is Narcan is okay so Narcan's right it's what you give but they may not Okay, so Nar- Nar- Narcan is what you give um, is what you give somebody who's having an active overdose, and you inject them with Narcan, and it reverses the overdose. And these days, every household should have one. Yes, yes, everybody should have Narcan around. Um, I mean, I was actually looking into carrying Narcan around with me just in case. I mean, we live, you know. My friend Ellen, uh, she interviewed a fireman for uh, a program back in Nashville, and th- she said, "Is there anything that you sh- do you want to tell people?" Uh, just in general, you know, you're a firefighter, what's the message you'd like to get out? And the message was, you should have Narcan, every citizen should have Narcan in their home and in their, like in their car or in their purse or something, because the the overdose situation is so out of control at this point that it's going to save a life. Yeah. Just randomly, a stranger's life or, or somebody, you know, or somebody in your family. Yeah. And you don't have to, it's, 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 you don't have to like stab a needle anymore. You can just like blow it up the nose or whatever. So she had to get that for you? Well, so I went to this clinic. And so every day they gave me a a, a controlled dose of Narcan, upping it each time. So basically every day they, they 
shot me into withdrawal and just put, and pulled day by day, pulled this medication out of my system. So every day, we, we had a learning curve with it. Fortunately, the hotel that we got was like five minutes from the clinic because we learned that we had about 10 to 15 minutes from when I took the Narcan to my mom somehow getting me into that hotel room and locking the door before I just, not when I, I said went berserk. I mean went berserk, but like was very disoriented, very like, I mean, I, I walked into a wall at one point, like gashed my nose. There, you know, just needed to be, just like get her in the room and start controlling the situation as best we can. Like, but not fit for public consumption. Because I was in active drug withdrawal with Narcan flowing. Massive. I mean, I can't stress this enough. The fact that you went from 15 years to eight days is mind-boggling. When I came out of that eight days, and by the way, after those eight days, I went back to work full-time five days later. I didn't know. I asked them. I was like, how much time do I need to take off? They're like, well, I'm going to take a few days off after. Like, these people, you need to have much better, more comprehensive information about what someone is going to need in terms of aftercare. And I would like to say, you know, we, we think about a 30-day or 60-day or 90-day, whatever it is, rehab. We think about going through acute withdrawal and then, oh, it's going to be rough for a few months. No, it's, uh, it's going to be years of your body adjusting on different levels. It is going to be years of your brain adjusting on different levels. It has been three and a half years and I am still adjusting on different levels, and I know it. Do you miss it? I do not. And and um, I did a lot of hard work. I did. I mean, once I got off of that, I was. I had my body did nothing. My body did not know how to do anything. Like I didn't produce neurotransmitters at that point. My dopamine was depleted. I would wake up in the morning, and I was like, "How am I? Like, how am I supposed to do the thing where I get up? Like how?" dear legs are you able to move can you stand me up like i would just lay there did they give you gabapentin they did give me gabapentin yep they gave me gabapentin and they gave me wellbutrin which is actually helpful So basically trying to retrain your brain how to be a brain Mm, yes and they gave me um it's called um oh they give it to they give it for people uh going uh naltrexone naltrexone it it blocks alcohol too so it's an opiate blocker and an alcohol blocker um and they gave me naltrexone because let's say i were to then get my hands on some uh, opiates it wouldn't go into my system if you have naltrexone it'll block them so my mom's like why don't they just give you that in the beginning well you know it's a good question um but the truth is if i had just had that in the beginning i don't i don't know that i would have been able to stay off of opiates do you know what i mean like it's Everything is everything its, has its yeah. has its place in, yeah. in a number of ways. Um, and and then, you know, I had a lot of Valium and then I went to Mexico and I bought more Valium and more muscle relaxants because I was and I smoked uh, a lot of pot. And then, you know, I mean, did some other drugs because I'm like, oh, my gosh, I am a I am a drug addict who just had all the drugs sucked out of her and I don't know what to do. And the only thing I know how to do are drugs to to fix these feelings and like uh, how well like Adderall freaking Diet Coke I'm like how how do I make my body work I don't know what to do like I genuinely don't know how to make my body function so I did you know I did what I could so then in order again this is I was like guys ayahuasca's out there somewhere like the ayahuasca's out there 
so somewhere in the middle of all of that, I... Um, Really quick, I want to, yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to point out to people listening that ayahuasca has been shown to actually help people completely stop the cycle of addiction. Very much so. So that's something to mention that when she keeps talking about ayahuasca, it's, this is, I, I am assuming this is the end game, is the understanding that it could break the cycle. Yeah, ayahuasca and, for that matter, psilocybin and, for that matter, iboga, which is um, which is a very powerful plant medicine from Africa, and combo, which is not psychedelic, but is an extremely powerful medicine from the Amazon that comes from uh, the secretion of a frog. Oh, the frog! And actually, I'm, I'm, I'm currently undergoing training in combo so that I can serve combo to people. Um, so we'll be able to talk about that in the future, too. Um, because it's extremely powerful. It has extremely powerful peptides and it is extremely healing. And these are, these are, these are peptides. I mean, th- th- this is medically researched. This, this is, is pharmacology. This is thousands of years also, which yes. of course the pharmaceutical companies, and this isn't conspiracy. This is truly, they don't want you to know about these natural healing things because no. they've created a whole system of synthetic healing. Quote Absolutely. Unquote which is really just a machine to keep you attached to them. It sure is. And we have other ways. Mm-hmm. We have other ways. We do. And you've so, made the plan to do the ayahuasca. I mean, I'd, I, it's, it's still out there. It's on the horizon. I'm like, you got to get there. You got to get there. I had to go, so then I had to go through, to go through you know, I had, to get, I had to get off of Wellbutrin, which is its own withdrawal. I had to get off of Naltrexone, which is its own withdrawal. I had to get off of getting, getting off of the benzos again. Getting, I mean, getting off of Valium. That, by the way, benzodiazepine withdrawal is extremely dangerous as well. Did you do this on your own or did you? Yeah, you know, I don't recommend it. I'd like everybody to know I do not recommend self-weaning. Um, but given given my, I'm going to say, relatively extensive experience with, ph- with pharmaceuticals at this point, I was like, you know what? Again, you got to help yourself. But I, I don't in any way, shape, or form advocate how I did it Mm. and the reason I did it the way I did it was because I wasn't quite sure how to get the support that I needed and I admittedly wasn't quite sure how to ask for the support that I needed and at that point I I just I had been through so much medically that I just I was like we're, we're we're getting we're getting down we're getting down to it and and I have some kind of faith that I've that I've got this under control and I'm just going to keep riding this train. Mm-hmm. I'm on this train and I'm going to keep riding it. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to go. So so I did and I and I just, you know, you had to get off of certain drugs at certain points ahead of ayahuasca. Um, you had to get off, you know, I got myself down like I weaned off of all these drugs. I started doing I started doing some coke more often I'd start started taking some Adderall I mean I was just trying to move and go through my very busy New York life of full-time work and not let any of my clients know they knew I had been gone for a couple weeks on a medical leave and that when I came back I was pretty tired but nonetheless still showed up um, but I was trying to just keep that going while I you know and I was I was still not nutritionally I was just still eating lots of candy because my body was a mess and I was still working out very, very hard. I was a pretty punishing worker outer for a long time. Um, you know, I'm glad you didn't have a heart attack through all this. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, mm. it's amazing with the years of or the, stroke, the years of eating poorly and the years of you know, 
I'm going to say partial anorexia, you know, and then the years of... Disordered eating, for sure. I think disordered eating is the best way. There's something called orthorexia, too, which is um, where you get very um, very particular about how you eat, like food quality, food type, particular diets, cleanses, etc., etc. So I got pretty... I've, I've been pretty far down that track, too. Um, they have exercise anorexia, where you exercise so mm-hmm. hard to get rid of every calorie you eat. Mm-hmm. That was a really big one for me many years. Just, like, like freaking just work out for four hours. Mm-hmm. Just work out. That's just usually like, coupled with the bulimia. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't like throwing up, which is interesting. But bulimia isn't always throwing up, I've learned. Mm. There's also... Just because uh, I would I would binge and not purge. Mm-hmm. And then I would exercise the heck out of myself. That's, see, that's what I'm saying. It was coupled with bulimia, like eating your face off and then coupling it with uh, extreme exercise. Yeah. Right. I know that so one. So you don't have to throw up to be bulimic. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, great. More disordered eating. <laughs> Fun. Yay. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. <laughs> cool, man. <laughs> Maybe I was bulimic too. No, <laughs> I just love that this episode is going to touch so many people on so many different levels. Like, uh, there's now that we've we've touched so many swaths of humanity that some there's going to be somebody in every in the Venn diagram. The, the just, Venn diagram, all the circles are crossing. I know, I love it. All the circles, all <laughs> seventy-two circles in our no, you know so Mama Gaia Venn diagram oh, here, Lord. with all of the um, sacred geometry. We're getting it. So, yeah, just got myself, got myself to the medicine, um, to the, to the ayahuasca. Did you off. have to get off the cocaine then? And all oh, yeah, that. get yeah. off, get off cocaine, get off the Adderall. Um, I found hypnosis during all of this. Mm-hmm. Hypnosis was very helpful to help me get off of, to get off of these things or to, to taper them down. You know, I went, I, I had regular hypnosis for a few months and I didn't, I didn't quit doing all the drugs, but it got, it got it. I, I was able to taper it enough to stop it ahead of going mm. you know so we, yeah i mean were you was, experiencing romantic relationships during this time or were you too invested in the drugs um i mean i dated people yeah okay but i wouldn't say but not nothing that nothing that was either serious or lasted a long so time so nothing invested no because i did not have bandwidth for mm-hmm. 15 years i was in i was i have been in a very committed relationship with drugs there is no more committed relationship there is there is you will you will die for it you will do anything for it you love it more than you would love i mean anything it's it's them i i there was no space for any other relationships outside of my deep deep commitment to this um but yes i did date a number of people and had a number of very very interesting Things transpired during all of my dating escapades in um, in New York and beyond. Um, That's probably a whole other show too. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna have you on. Are we there yet? To yes. Talk about that stuff. Yes. The other show that that I do. Well, because it you know it's it's especially fascinating to go from super unhealthy dating and behavior to being able to watch myself work so hard to do things in a way that I never learned Mm. and to and to and to in you know in this moment of time really continue to like really make the effort really even even in the in the face of all of my own struggles and all of my own you know uh you know pain that will show up in a given moment and to be able to transcend it work with it love it 
because our pain is just asking for our love at the end of the day. It's just asking for our love. Um, and to do all of that in service of, of creating healthy partnerships, uh, wh- whether they're romantic or friends or work, I mean, any of the, any of the relationships that we create, but, but most specifically, you know, romantically, um, it's been a, it's been a really, it's a, it's been a really interesting journey to watch as the observer. You know, if I step back and watch myself as if I am a movie playing out in front of me, it's, uh, it's really fulfilling. It's really fulfilling to get to watch yourself make those kinds of changes. Mm. Um, especially, especially when you were like, I might die in a month. So let's see how that goes. And all of that work to get to ayahuasca was a really important and necessary part of that journey. So if I had woken up one day and just been like, you know, I'd really like to try ayahuasca. I wonder what that's like, you know, check that off my list of things to do, um, which I know can happen in the world of it becoming so popularized and people hearing about it so much. I'm not saying people shouldn't try it, mm. but for me, the amount of like survival level hard work I had to put into getting there, the medicine meets you where you are. Mm. The medicine will rise up and give to you what you have given to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, uh, I had me, really wanna, powerful experiences. Yeah, that's for me. I want to. The reason why I want to do ayahuasca is because of all my childhood trauma. Yeah, so I want to see. You know, I've done a lot of work, like a lot, a lot, but nowhere near scratch the surface because how do you ever really, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's what it's for. You know, it's, it's, we all walk around with, with, with pain and we Mm -hmm. all walk around with painful experiences. Um, You know, to be alive is, is, is to, is to experience pain. Tough planet. Tough planet. But, but we can, we can separate pain from suffering. I think so. So, med- you know, these kinds of medicines are are how we can learn how to access our pain, observe our pain, experience our pain, because a lot of times we can talk about it and not necessarily feel it, or we can know it, but not necessarily find where it is in our bodies, because our, our experiences very much get stored in our bodies. Oh, yeah, and intellectualizing pain. I think we talked about this sort of in the beginning of yeah, this, yeah. this journey, is that if you're up in your head discussing, you can talk about it to blue in the face, understand it, see it from all directions and all sides. It doesn't mean you've pulled it out. doesn't mean that you've gotten to it. It's hi- still hiding somewhere. Absolutely. Or one of the versions of you from childhood or middle age or you know wherever you are or old age whatever it is it's still got that little ball of whatever the thing is and it's in a protected little box then you can talk about the box isn't the box interesting mm-hmm. wonder what's in the box mm-hmm. oh i think this is in the box and that's in the box and who put it in the box but you never opened the fucking box you didn't open the box yeah because you know all this stuff around it you can intellectualize it so the cows come home and opening the box is scary. <laughs> opening the box is scary because, and there's a lot of boxes. Yeah, yeah. And and they're all they're no matter all, how, and like, no matter know. how together you are, there's a lot of boxes. This is a thing. It's like nobody's walking around without boxes. Right, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. We all we all have a lot that's gone on, mm. and it just depends on how we how we want to choose to how we want to choose to look at it and how we want to choose to deal with it if we want to choose to look at it if we want to choose to deal with it 
And right, and that's the choice too. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not for me personally or any of us in in my opinion to say what someone else should or shouldn't do or how they should do it. Absolutely. You know, everybody everybody gets to make their choice. And um I I, I do there's a lot of tough stuff going on the, going on in the world, but I I do believe generally we can you know have we have some outliers, but generally I really believe that people are doing their best with, so. with what they have with what they with have what they have I available. agree with that statement. In the same way that my twenty year old self was doing the best with what she had available at the time, and that is not what my thirty year old self would do, and not what I would do now. Mm. It's just what I had at the time and I did what I could that's the hardest part about in my personal opinion about forgiveness because Mm -hmm. forgiveness is not really about the other person uh, because they may never say they're sorry they may never acknowledge that they hurt you and you get to decide whether or not you want to keep carrying it around Mm -hmm. or not and of course you, you can keep carrying it around you can choose not to forgive someone of course that's an option for me personally, that's an exhausting option. Yeah, it is. Personally. I but I get why other people maybe don't make those choices. And it's also not linear. I think we talked a lot about that too. Your journey, certainly not linear. Not linear. Nope. And so you may choose to forgive someone or something in your life. And then a couple years down the line, have a moment where you dip out of that forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And then something happens again, and maybe you dip back into it. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you can you can for, you can forgive, and also still have your feelings. Oh yeah, you know, like for sure. Sometimes I think we think like, oh, I forgive. It's all done. It's all over. I can very much forgive you and let go of of whatever is attached to all of that, and. An experience was still real. We don't we don't get to go back and erase mm. history, but we can but we can change how we choose to move forward with how we feel about anything or how, how we, we choose to treat it. anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how we experience you know our our own experience. Mm-hmm. And and so what you said about forgiveness, it really it also really applies to ourselves too. Mm-hmm. Forgiving former versions of ourselves for the choices the choices that we made yeah. when those were again what we had available to us at the time and that can be a really hard one i lately i i've been you know working with some of that with myself it's it's very easy for me to go back and love that little kid Mm -hmm. but it's not always easy for me to go back and love say that 21 year old who found herself in a tough spot and maybe you know didn't have a great experience and it's just like you should have known better (laughs) you know it's but it's tougher i it's like feeling myself have you know more anger at one version of me versus another and it's like wait that one was doing her best too my you know one of my improv coaches said yeah you know what you know when you know when you know it and if you don't know it you don't know it and it sounds like word salad but it makes a lot of sense it's like you know what you know in the moment exactly and every other moment doesn't if we really truly be here now Yes, my hat says be here now. Yeah, if we really truly be here now, then every moment that came before and every moment that shall be is inconsequential Mm -hmm. and doesn't actually exist. That's a weird thing to wrap your brain around. Absolutely. What's done is done. And what's going to come, we don't know. We've only got And every version of ourselves that we've been 
gets to be that version. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it's, and, and it's not easy always to sit with this because it's, um, it can be where it can take a, a good amount of work to let go of doing things the way you've always done them. It just takes work. You know, all the work that we can, all the work that we can put into establishing, let's say, a bad habit, that same energy and work is available to establish a healthier habit. Mm. You know, so every time we're upset with ourselves, oh, I can't believe I'm like this. I can't believe I'm like that. I can't believe it went that way. I can't believe it went that way. Well, that same energy is available for it to go a different way. So I, I always remember that. I always remember that because, believe me, everything that I've talked about here, I've, I've not had always an easy time forgiving myself for how things went. Forgiving myself for, you know, 15 years spent with opiates as my, as my top priority mm-hmm. has, taken, has taken some time and some work. But you wouldn't. That's the, that's the other conundrum, right? You wouldn't be who you are. And I wouldn't be who I am. And I'm so, like... Like, you're great. Thank you. You're great. I mean, I knew it the minute we met. I was like, this person is is somebody I want to know. Like, I knew it instantly, right? And you going through all the fires, that it, it has now created in you a level of understanding of the world and of, of having a deep, deep empathy and connection mm-hmm. to so many levels and different kinds of people, that, that's beautiful. And, yeah. and in its own way, heaven sent. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't change it. It's created, it's created love on a level that I didn't know existed. It, that is, is what and it's And hopefully done. for yourself, too. And, and maybe not on every day, but hopefully on some days. Well, yeah, on because balance, absolutely. Because look at what you've gone through. Holy shit. And there are people that won't survive what you've been through. And that sucks, and that's a shame. And there's no judgment on that either. The people mm-mm, that didn't mm-mm. survive it. Mm-mm. No. It's just, you know, they did the best they could with what they had. Absolutely. And when we think, you know, we think about people say like, oh, my plate is so full. And it's like, well, you know what? We all have really different size plates. <laughs> and it's really important to remember that someone's, someone could have a little plate and that plate has one thing on it. And for them, that's a full plate. Mm-hmm. And someone else could have a giant platter and there are 40 different things on that platter. And for them, that's a full plate. Those are two equally full plates. It is not for, it is just not for me to judge. It is not for me to say, mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening inside of someone else. And you're right, you know, this has been an, it's been an extremely humbling journey. I, I, you know, I was never like a, like a mean person or somebody that I, you know, it's, it's not that I was, there was nothing wrong with me or something, but I just didn't have, I just didn't really have a lot of I had empathy deep down, but in my daily life, I didn't have a lot of empathy or perspective. I had some pretty narrow ways that I saw things. Here's how you live a good life. Here's what it looks like. Here's the things you do. Here's the clothes you wear. Here's the types of houses you live in. Here's the schools you go to. It was pretty, you know, this is this is what people who are productive do. This is what people who are the right kind of people do. These kinds of perspectives. And 
going through this has been like humbling in a way that I am so grateful for because it's what you said. It's like I look at people and I'm able to go, wow, you're you're just a person who deserves love just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't used to think that is, is all. It's not that I thought they didn't deserve whatever. I you, didn't to be care. I don't know. Fair, you were also basically out of the gate in a self-preservation mode. So I was. I, I was then, out of the gate, yes, yes. My know, nervous there's system. A, there's a level of narcissism <laughs> that is required in there order is. to exist yeah. in that world. And so, you know, cut yourself some slack there, too. Yes, right? there is. There is a level yeah. of... of thinking about yourself all the time because you're just like trying to figure out how to make the next step workable Mm -hmm. that is true Mm -hmm. that is true and you know what and and thank you so much for pointing that out thank you for pointing that out I appreciate that um that is something that I have in my life been hard on myself about like like how come I didn't have more capacity to be nicer when I was younger but you were busy Right. It, it was busy. You were a little busy. It was pretty busy. It was busy. <laughs> you were busy managing a whole lot of feelings, not only your own, but everyone else's. That's a lot to expect from a kid. Yeah. And then it creates, you know, a world that your, your brain goes, oh, this is how we survive this. Carries yeah. it through. Carries it through. And that's and that's what we do. We're, you know, as people, we, we get very conditioned to survival. Mm-hmm. And moving from a place of survival to thriving is it's a journey. It's a journey and it's and it's scary actually. It's like because and this is definitely something that's been really um, up in my up in my space lately. It's it's one thing to to have a bunch of pain and to have the experience of pain and to have the boundaries and to have all that. And but you know it. And you've known it forever. And there's a certain comfort level in it. Mm-hmm. There's a certain comfort level. And then it's it's another thing to go, who am I and what do I actually want? That is so scary. and, and But beautiful, of course, because it's the world of opportunity. But when you've never practiced asking yourself what I want, like what do I want because you either were set on some kind of a schedule or you were always truly so worried about what everybody else wants and conditioned to what everybody else wants. Somebody asks me what I want, and I'm like, I, th- I feel like my first response is, A, I don't know, and B, well, what do you want me to want? Not so much right now, but, but up until very recently, it's like, what should I want? Mm. Well, what would it work for you for me to want? Mm-hmm. Right? We have these instinctive, like, and it's beautiful. Of course you want approval. Of course you want to be accepted. I mean, there's not everything needs to be pathologized, right? Like we do, we also want to fit in and we also want to learn how to be part of community. And we also do want to genuinely do things that are beneficial towards other people and, and all of those things. But I'll be the first person to say that a lot of, or at least a large part of that in me was always, how do I respond to what other people are needing? How do I respond to what other, how do I people please? How do I, how do I do my best That's to try to people please? That's a level of anxiety. Mm, that is huge. a high level of anxiety. It anticipatory is. thinking and and feeling like you have to always be one step ahead of what anybody else wants so that you can serve them that's that's a lot of energy it's a lot of energy yeah it's a lot of energy mm-hmm. you know so um it's been a really interesting experience to ratchet down from that kind of i i like to say i was like well i was born on defcon 5 like i was and I actually, d- I did spend a particular um, medicine journey in my own, <laughs> in my own, like, 
uh, gestation. Hmm. So I got it. I got like a really interesting opportunity to see what it's like, what it was like for me to be inside my mom. And I was two and a half weeks late, and my mom was in labor with me for almost two days. I did not want to come out. Like I didn't. And I went back and looked. I was like, well, I see why I don't want to come out. Like I, I already had an awareness of so many things. And You're like I've decorated, I've put up posters. And you know what? It's warm. It's just warm in it's here. Warm. I don't want to go. I got outside. the temperature just right. It's like a, it's like a, just it's a nice eighty-eight. Like you, why you would all, I go out there? Y'all do what you gotta do. I'm staying in here. Bye. I've been trying to get warm since. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I have so much love for people. I just oh, whatever we can do to try to to try to just not shut our hearts down. I'm not even going to say open our hearts because because that's actually I was reading about this recently. Yes, open our hearts. That's a beautiful objective and that's a place to get to. But you know, if you've got a thousand dominoes, I mean, before you jump to domino number 975, let's come back in here into uh into the into the meat and potatoes of it and if we can not shut our hearts down. Mm. If we can not shut down when things get a little tricky or when things get tough or when we're in a relational situation that's hard, if we can just not shut our heart down, it leaves room for something. Maybe it leaves room for the openness to to then transpire. But we've got to start with what's a little bit more realistic, which is when that moment comes to go into fight or flight, starting to learn how to not walk that path and just try not to shut down. And I, I, I still spend a lot of time there. I get to also spend some time in open, which is incredible. Mm. Um, I used to carry rocks in my mm. pocket. And it, when I'd start to feel myself leaving my body, I would just hold onto a rock. Or I was barefoot all the time as a kid, all the time, as many kids are. But I think for me, it was a, a trying to keep me in my... I was not in my body a whole lot as a kid. So trying to get back and touch and feel like, oh, feet feel something. Feet feel floor, feet feel grass. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And and being barefoot is really grounding. Mm-hmm. I mean, people talk about it now. <laughs> you know, now it's now it has, like, trendy names, like earthing. Oh, or, does it? Yeah. I there's, heard that. There's... there's mm-hmm. I, I remember I was, I was in New York uh, a couple years ago, and, and someone asked me... And someone asked me, it's like a, on a dating app, they were like, do you ever go forest bathing? And I was like, forest bathing? I was like, you mean like hiking? You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what it essentially was, like going out and being in nature. That's so funny. I do hug a tree now and again. I'm yeah. a big, I talk to plants a lot. Plants and, and animals are big for me. That's another really grounding thing, but they feel very alive to me. And so it, I, I, I get a response and it, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm part of something so big, mm. you know, and yet, uh, but not in a, not in a panicky way, like that it's not just me here. I don't know how to explain it exactly. It's sounds a little woo-woo, I suppose, but. Well, woo-woo is a pretty awesome. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's woo-woo is pretty awesome. Yeah. If there's somebody listening that is maybe going through some stuff and wants to talk to you or reach out to you, how, what's a good way to find you on social media? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, or absolutely. The or the, the food nurturing or any of that stuff? Or absolutely. just saying, I'm trying to figure out what the fuck I'm doing with my life. Do you have any recommendations? Whatever. Absolutely. And I, and I, would, and I would love to help people. And I work with people virtually. 
Um, I do, you know, health coaching and hypnosis during the pandemic and Pilates, of course, I learned that I can hypnotize people online. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. And now I do. The four times I've done it, I've done it through Zooms. Yes. And it works and it's, great. It's incredible, right? It's great. It's incredible. It is incredible. You, you know, for people who think that, like, you need a person in front of you TikToking a stopwatch or, uh, you know, the pendulum, watch the pendulum swing. Oh, no. We've got some other mm-hmm. other techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I am on, on Instagram. You can follow me at Rachel Retman, R-A-C-H-E-L-R-E-T-T-M-A-N. I think that's the best way okay. probably to reach me. Sure. Um, I also have my website. It's just rachelretman.com. Perfect. So it's same spelling with a www and a com preceding it. I'll put after. links on heyhumanpodcast.com too. And then, um, I mean, I'm on Facebook, but that's essentially a birthday calendar. No, I get it. <laughs> so God, I wouldn't know anyone's birthday if it wasn't for Facebook. Which, by the way, if you're list. listening... Take your birthday off of Facebook. Make it a different day. It's a great way for scammers to get more of your information. That's oh, my, I didn't think about yeah, that. I, I'm, I'm so, I feel like I'm so, I... I made my parents, oh. too. I'm like, Mom, Dad, take your birth, like, put a fake birthday. Put it close, you know, whatever, but just don't put your birthday. <laughs> oh, I never thought about that. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I definitely analog childhood, it's moderately digital adulthood. Totally forget about things like that, yeah. I will admit. But that's a good idea. Yeah. That's a good idea. It's not good to have your birth date up. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I think I have the wrong year, maybe. But it's still the right day. Every um, female on the planet has the wrong year. <laughs> Let's be honest. Unless you're like 12, which then you're not supposed to be on Facebook anyway. So true. Rachel, thank you. Yeah. This has been my honor to hold this space. I mean, this has been an incredible conversation, in my humble opinion. And... Uh, and we have moved into Joe Ray- Rogan length of podcast territory. Yeah, we might need to edit this one down a little bit. But Not we'll much, see. though. I don't think. I mean, that when I shut the windows. When the cat got when crazy. When the cat got crazy. We had a crazy cat moment. Yeah, maybe then. But other than that, thank you. And thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, hang in there. And reach out to me, and I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you, too. Well, I'll talk to you. Yeah, we will. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Rachel. Sure. Bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.